Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Jeff Tom, um, ACB board member and a past resolutions chair. And my, today we're going to talk about how we can better enable all of us at the state and local levels to help implement resolutions. And with me, uh, my two panelists are the president of the Pennsylvania Council of the Blind and chair of the Rehabilitation Task Force, Chris Hunsinger. And Hello. my state chapter president and resolutions chair for ACB, Gabe Griffith. Hello, everybody. So, you know, ACB has changed so dramatically in the past five years or so in uh, many different ways. Um, financially, you know, we were not so long ago a very struggling organization from, from a financial perspective. And now we have a nice little reserve. We're doing very well. Um, our, and this includes our relationships with corporate America that are better than ever before. Um, the ACB community, of course, I won't go into that since we've talked about it a number of times during the course of the weekend. Our management structure has changed, not only with the L10 formats, which we won't go into here, but with our steering committees, our conventions and voting, of course. How could we all not know all of that? And that's continuing to change. And, of course, in advocacy. I think, uh, you know, I hate to say this, but I think that, that five years ago we were viewed a little bit as the stepchild of, of NFB, perhaps, but that's no longer the case. We're an equal partner, and in, and in many, many arenas, we really lead the way in advocacy f for people who are blind or who have low vision in this country. But one thing that has not changed sufficiently uh, is the way in which resolutions are handled in terms of giving folks at the state and local level the tools they need to help either help implement in some cases or completely implement in others the resolutions that we pass. I want to um, sort of artificially divide resolutions into three types, those that involve advocacy. The first are those that essentially require some kind of action just from our staff or perhaps from a committee. We won't discuss those today because they really don't need um, state and local level um, implementation. Uh, for example, uh, you might need to, you might have to have a staff member send a letter to the Postal Service about some accessibility issue. The second type is those that require primarily national advocacy, but that need work from the grassroots to get the best results. Um, and now some of those are become legislative imperatives, like with the ones we have this year. And we won't talk about those, but we certainly will talk about, in, in a moment or two, the, the other one, the uh, those in that type of resolution that really require state and local help. Um, to get the best possible results. The third type are those that are primarily implemented by state and local um, members of the American Council of the Blind, and we'll certainly spend a lot of time on that. But before we get to those resolutions, we want to look a little bit at the process itself 
and where it is today and perhaps where it should go in the future in order to give us the best possibility for um, local and state work on resolutions. And to talk about the process, I'm going to turn it over to Gabe Griffith. Gabe? All right. Thanks, Jeff. So today we're going to give you a little bit of a peek behind the curtain at how the sausage is made, uh, so to speak. Um, resolutions, as, as we've talked about in various uh, forms in the last couple of years, come from several different places. Sometimes staff submits a resolution. Sometimes it comes from a committee. Sometimes it's a, a state that submits a resolution. And sometimes it is an individual that submits a resolution. In any case, they all go through pretty much the same process, regardless of where they come from. The committee uh, goes through and does our wordsmithing and does our research you know, as, we, as far as we can into the issue and, and uh, maybe who should be contacted or what should be done on it. Um, up until a couple of years ago, that was pretty much all done in the dark hours of some far off room in the hotel. Uh, and uh, because we met so late at night, sometimes an author was able to be there, a representative was able to be there, and sometimes not. Sometimes we'd have to try to meet with them during the day and come back to the committee. The last couple of years, we've since we've been doing them over Zoom, um, we've had a much larger participation. I'm happy to say, and uh, and hopefully, you know, that's definitely going to continue as we've talked about uh, yesterday for anyone that was there. Um, but then, once the resolutions are done, they traditionally go to the convention uh, body for voting. Last year, the last couple of years, as we know, they've gone to the board, and this year they're going back to the uh, membership for voting. What happens after that? Um, I, I think some people, you know, there's kind of a view, I think, in, in some ways that, oh, well, they've passed and now they're just, they go into some black hole somewhere. Uh, maybe they get posted on the, on the website, but, uh, you know, what really happens? Well, what, what happens is that after they pass, a group gets together to prioritize them. And that group consists of usually the advocacy staff. Uh, a couple of members from the ACB board and usually a couple of members of the resolutions committee. And the prioritization to this point has been, I think, somewhat arbitrary, um, giving them a priority of a, of a number system, one, two, or three. But what does a one, two, or three really mean? Um, and, and that is where there's been a lot of uh, kind of arbitrariness to it. Um, you know, of, of, well, this kind of feels like a one or this kind of feels like a two, but what, what does that really mean? And so that's where we are really trying to take that part of it and, and look at what can be done. Uh, so you know, maybe, maybe they need a prioritization of immediate uh, mid range and, and long range, you know, being those that, like Jeff said a moment ago, require a letter to be sent to somebody. Well, those can be done in 20 minutes. Um, mid-range might be something that's going to happen at 
the following legislative seminar, such as a uh, uh, legislative imperative, like Jeff said, or maybe it's going to be something that happens at the next convention, like uh, the transportation symposium that, that came out of a resolution a couple of years ago. Uh, long range would be things that uh, maybe require legislation or things that are definitely going to take probably two to five years um, down the road and, and take more effort. So there, there's where I think we really need to look at the prioritization. And I think it needs to also be more transparent to the membership of where that is. So one thought is since the resolutions are posted on the website, maybe we can post the documentation of what kind of priority they get. Um, so those, those are some of the things I think of what has happened and hopefully what can change in the future. Gabe, Jeff before I turn it over to Chris, what do you think about the possibility of including in that prioritization some sort of, you know, game plan as to what types of actions we might want to take more than just listing the priority itself? Do you think that's an idea whose time may have come? I think, I think it, that would definitely yeah. help. Yeah. Um, yeah. Again, it it flushes it out a lot more than just uh, you know giving it a one two three or a, an immediate mid range long range whatever the prioritization is, saying okay this is a an immediate uh, response resolution, yeah we're gonna write a letter this is a, a you know whatever it, whatever priority it gets then yeah I think definitely putting a, a one or two sentence summary of what's gonna happen will definitely help to show the game plan of how that resolution is going to be implemented, whether it's by staff, by a committee, uh, or like we're going to talk about here in a minute, a, a kind of a hybrid of national and state organ, uh, the national and, and state affiliate or national state and, and uh, special interest affiliates or whatever it is. Okay. So now I'm going to turn it over to Chris. And I think it was Chris who actually came up with the idea for this panel. And um, it was a great idea. Yes, it was. And Chris, uh, I'm going to have you talk about um, how we can work a little bit on resolutions that really have to be dealt with at the national level, but which really require a lot of work from the grassroots, from us, the rank and file. Okay. Um, you know, the thing about it is, Sometimes we have to wait for national to come up with something um, before the states can take, start taking their actions. Uh, for instance, the, um, the voting resolution, you know, the resolution said that it, there would be a best practices document written and that would be passed on so that people would know how to do things um, or what things would might matter. Um, and, and so these, these kinds of things, require may require some um, control so that we all know when this part is done so that part can be done and we might actually need a scorecard that tells people if they go to that spot we've gone this far on this resolution and now we're up to the point where you guys can start doing things um when when you think about how a, a resolution can be uh, you know two ways You've got the national organization saying uh, for the airline, uh, the uh, the resolution to make the uh, 
I'm sorry, I'm, I'm the dog, the, uh, the forms that you fill out when you go with your guide dog to the plane. Um, you know, we're telling the airlines what they need to do, but GDUI is going to help people who get stuck trying to get it done. And I guess that'll go back to national as well to tell people it's not working right. You really aren't doing this the way you're supposed to. Um, and it's really important to realize what part of the resolution is the important part. The whereas is tell us what the issues are and the resolves tell us what we want done. And that's really what people need to think of in, in terms of the resolutions. We had 27 resolutions last year. Many of them are things that, as, as, um, as Jeff said, only need national work. Um, for instance, the, um, resolution about, uh, PBS making their programs, uh, their audio description everywhere. If it's been done once, why not continue to do it on all the streaming platforms, et cetera? I mean, that's something that we could ask for all we want on the state level, but nationally, um, you know, every, that's gonna, that's gonna really be done at the, at the national level by the network itself and not by me saying to my local station, I want that on the streaming section. Um, so those are the kinds of things that, that, um, you know, that, that these things can change, that these things can be done, say, only nationally, um, where the voting one is going to get a handbook kind of thing that the states can work with after it gets, after it gets written. And we can then all go locally and on the state level to push for accessible voting, accessible absentee ballots, all those other things. But since all that has to be done on a state and local level, that's where you have to finally, that's where the, where the rubber really does hit the road on that one. So I'm going to talk for a while about some of the resolutions that, and I'll, I'm going to use some from this last year as examples, um, some of the resolutions that really require primarily state or local action. But before I go into those, I want to give an example of one that I think was treated fairly well in terms of um, giving out information, and that is there's a resolution a couple of years ago, I think it might have been 2018 or it might have been 2019. The years blur together when you're as old as I am. Um, when you do as many resolutions or, as you do. Uh, I, know. I knew he had some smart remark to make. Um, the minute is a compliment, sir. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, <laughs> the we had a resolution on door to door wanting not wanting door to door paratransit service um, as opposed to curb to curb. And this really is, you know, because it's highly unlikely that the, that the law is going to change any time in uh, my lifetime, at least, on that issue uh, to require it. This is really something that has to be dealt with, um, you know, transit district by transit district and, or perhaps at a state level, but, but realistically, um, at the local level. I think the Transportation Committee with Becky and Sheila and Ron Brooks and others have done a really good job of providing various types of, you know, community forums on issues like that that have given people some of the tools they need 
to advocate on issues such as paratransit issues that are so local in nature. So um, let's go to some some resolutions for this year and see, you know, how we can work on some of these issues. Um, the first one from last year, number one, so it was first in that regard um, as well, was mandatory disability awareness training for healthcare workers. That really covers a broad swath of people. Nurses, doctors, um, EMTs, uh, it, it covers, uh, you know, psychologists, um, it covers, you know, nurse practitioners. It's, it's all sorts of folks um, are in the healthcare field. And it's handled, you know, that topic, uh, the, the administration of those laws is definitely a state um, area of the law. And it's handled differently in different states. In California, for example, um, there's a board for almost every one of these different professionals. And that's the way it is in many states. Um, but in Vermont, for example, maybe there's just one board that really, and I don't know Vermont, so don't hold me to this, you Vermonters. Um, th there may be one board that regulates, you know, the vast majority of these healthcare professionals. But, um, but these boards in many, many states, um, have a lot of authority to set the, um, regulatory structure for the type of training that these entities get. In some states, you uh, it may be impacted by state laws and you may be able to you know, pass a piece of legislation. But the key here is that um, if, if we're going to give the tools to our members to do this, we actually need to have some modules on how you know, we won't be able to cover every state, but we should have examples of how, you know, various states do this. And we need to have a, a few community calls. And it's it's kind of interesting um, that this panel topic has come up because there are actually two um, parallel but, but different um, tracks that this sort of self-advocacy um is has been discussed and i just thought i'd throw them both out to you one of them is within our organization and i want to give a shout out to chris bell i don't know whether he's listening to this or not but um his ears should be burning if he is um he suggested and i i think that the the time has really come that we have different you know, part of the problem is we have experts in a lot of fields, um, but uh, that expertise isn't shared as widely as it needs to be. Some of us are growing older, and we don't want to do this forever. And the, the, the expertise needs to be shared far and wide. And the community has given us a chance um, both, you know, by, by virtue of sending around written documentation and by virtue of holding community calls to disseminate a lot of this information. And you know, we need to be developing modules. And for example, we should have a module on 
how how best to work on you know the the issue of requiring you know uh, health sensitivity training for healthcare workers. Um, and we're going to get to another one in, in just a few minutes. But this is one area. At the same time, um, uh, something that both Larry Johnson and I are involved in um, through the Aging and Vision Loss National Coalition, um, headed by the Vision Serve Alliance and Lee Nasahi. See, all these things, you know, come around. ACB is just entangled in all of this. Um, they are having us, they are coming up with a self advocacy. Um, project, which is essentially going to try to do a very similar thing, and that is to have modules on various types of areas that people need to learn more about in order to effectively self-advocate. So these are the type of things that we need to, I think, take more time and put in more effort to give our members the tools they need, and, and this whole area is just such a one. Um, having said that, it isn't impossible at your state level to, you know, call your, you know, medical board or call your, you know, whatever, or, or, or call the nurses association. Every every state has a, um, to my knowledge, has their own state nurses association, and you can contact their lobbyist and say, hey, you know. We have this resolution. How would you recommend that we try to change the landscape in terms of disability awareness? So, you know, you can begin to undertake those efforts, but fully realizing that this is a really a, a long-term resolution and it's going to take a lot of work to get it done. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't be doing it. Let's go to another one um, from last year, um, spend a little bit of time on. Um and that is, and this is a little bit different. Um, it was 2021-4, and it dealt with the uh, sexual assault and other concerns at rehabilitation training programs. And this um, had this presented as sort of an interesting problem, not not in terms of the of the thrust of the revolution, which was of course very disturbing, but. But in terms of um, how to best go about remedying the problem, um, in this case, um, a, a few folks, uh, including most notably um, our immediate past president of ACB, uh, Mitch Pomerantz, came up with um, a lot of recommendations which um, were presented in California, many of which were actually contained in the resolution itself but this was an instance where we sort of had a roadmap but it's a very it is a very complex situation when you're dealing with the um administration of rehabilitation programs and here again um we uh you know we probably needed to do more in terms of explaining all of these recommendations to the um, to, to folks who are involved in their state rehabilitation councils and and in other um, areas of, of 
you know, rehabilitation program or regulation at the state level because this is a very complex subject. And even though the many of the recommendations were in writing and, and out there for all to see, um, it doesn't necessarily make it easy to present those regulations. So this is, a, again, an area that, um, you know, perhaps we need to do more in terms of, you know, community calls or, or having, you know, some, you know, you know, rehabilitation task force um, efforts to work on this because of the complexity of the problem. Um, and I'm going to talk about one more resolution, and this is a really a complex area, and that is, um, but it's an area near and dear to my heart as um, president of AAVL and as someone who's worked in this area during my working life for many years. 2021-18 um, talked about um, how we could better include um, vision rehabilitation services under as to let me rephrase that how we could get coverage of vision rehabilitation services as Medicaid home and community based services because very few states notably Wisconsin and Nebraska, um, Louisiana, but very few states have these services covered under Medicaid. And since we have so little money to cover these services under our little OIB program, the idea is let's reach out to Medicaid and get get these services covered. Well, this too is a uh, primarily a state advocacy function. Although we are trying to work at it in, in AAVL and in ACB from a national level to get push started, but it's going to be primarily a state advocacy area. And again, we are probably going to have to produce some sort of an advocacy module because Medicaid is a very complex um, program. You know, you, you have to know both how the federal law works and you have to know how your state law works because it's administered differently in each state. Um, you have to comply with federal requirements, but a lot of it is is um, very discretionary to the states and it has, you know, and so every state has their own methodologies within, you know, certain parameters. And again, we're going to have to have some sort of an advocacy module. So I think the, 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 the primary lesson to learn is that when we pass a resolution that has a local or state component to it, we need to give a lot more thought as to the post-resolution um, conduct that we're going to um, that we're going to begin to implement in terms of giving people the tools they need to actually undertake the advocacy efforts that, that they're going to have to have in order to implement these resolutions. So um, I think with that, uh, I'm going to turn it back to either of my other two panelists for any comments they have, and then we can open it for questions. I was, I was just... I kind of had a thought, and maybe for either you or Chris, um, Chris, maybe if you, you're interested in taking this, but how would you see a president like you, know, you, Chris, or myself of a state organization or of a you know state affiliate 
uh, getting the information on what our state can do. Would that come in some kind of, would you see that coming in some kind of a uh, memo from the advocacy staff and, and saying, okay, resolution XYZ has been passed and we've prepared this and here's some outlines on um, steps that we would recommend your, your state take. Or do you have any other thought on on how that might be passed along to the the states for for our uh, involvement? We, you know, I when I said maybe we need a scorecard somewhere on the website. I mean, that might be the kind of thing that we would, you know, be looking at so that we could all take we could all look at it and say this is. This is stuff that we should be working on. You know, of course, one of the issues for the um, for ACB is that every state does things differently. And all they can do is all national can do is recommend that the states do stuff. Um, but then the states have to figure out and if the president says to it to its advocacy committee or team or whatever the state calls it. Um, look, this is this has come down from national. Do you think you can work on it? Um, and remember you're also going to be not only looking at it, I mean, you're going to look at it from a state perspective rather than from a national one, because national mm-hmm. can certainly get involved. And and they would then ask everybody in the whole organization to take on the federal side of it, I would think. What do you think? Yeah, and I think a lot of, many of these resolutions, um, we can't expect staff to do all this. Um, we have to reach out to our experts um, in the membership to try and, you know, take a hand at producing the information and disseminating the information that f- folks need at the grassroots level. I kind of like your, your suggestion there, Chris, of some kind of a scorecard almost that, uh, you know, could be updated with maybe what a, what a state has done, not necessarily to try to, shame any other affiliates but just to say hey here's what here's what we've accomplished in this state and that can help to give other states ideas an idea yeah Mm -hmm. all right so we have some time um do we have any questions and you can ask questions about specific resolutions if you want to although we may not be able to answer them but we might or you can ask more general questions about the topic that we've brought up so if you'd like to ask a question, it is Alt-Y on your PC, Options-Y on your Mac, Star 9 on a regular phone, and uh, it'll be under the, in the middle of your screen on the bottom on an app. And while we have a moment, I want to make sure to thank Monica, our host, who's done a fine job. Thank you, Tom, sure. Jeff. Um, once I allow you to talk, to mute and unmute, it's Alt-A on your PC, Command-Shift-A on your Mac, star 6 on your phone with the keypad, and it'll be in the middle of your screen on your app. And I do not see any hands yet. Come on, I'm sure we didn't do that good of a job. <laughs> we, did, we did a super job, or we didn't do the one. We put everybody to sleep, right? <laughs> I did want to talk okay. about things. Oh, you've got a you got somebody you got a got a victim. You got a hand. Well, <laughs> yes, I do. 
All right. Um, Mary? Okay. Here you go, Mary. You should see an ass. Okay, so we'll go to Meryl. Oh, hi. There you go. Hello. Hi, Monica. Hi, Jeff. Hey, Chris. Um... My um, question is, in Maryland, I'm the vice president of the American Council of Blind of Maryland, and when you were talking about paratransit, it made me think of recertification, and that's a big thing because I'm on the Consumer Advisory Committee for Accessible Transportation, and I I really, you know, we had talked to them about it, and they said, oh, we'll talk to so-and-so, and uh, then on a subcommittee, they haven't really done anything. So I think that for the state of Maryland, it would probably be best to have a resolution for the state because I had, uh, I think I asked Pat Sheehan about the national and he had said no, um, that they've tried to pass that resolution for recertification with the national, but it's better to do it statewide and, you know, for Maryland. So I just wanted your opinion on that. Actually, Meryl, when, when you say when you say recertification, are you saying like how frequency of how often to recertify, no, or is there I mean, problems sorry, with the recertification process? I'm sorry, Gabe. I should have made it clear. As far as I don't think we should have to recertify at all if we are um, because this is not conditional. I'm totally blind, mm-hmm. or someone that's partially sighted. Right. You have to go. Not to something that's likely to change to on Wednesday. You know, so I mm-hmm. think it's ridiculous. Sorry, th- sorry, Jeff, I cut you off. I just wanted to... Go right ahead. I, I was thinking that's what you were asking, Merrill, but I, I just wanted a clarification. Yeah. Sorry, Jeff, go ahead. I, you were, you were going to respond. I think a state resolution is very wise because ultimately, the you know, ultimately you might be able to get a state law passed to do this. More than likely, you'd probably have to do it at the transit district level because I'm, I'm not sure mm-hmm. your state would pass a law like that, but it's possible. But certainly it's going to be a state and local mm-hmm. issue. I don't think we're going to see any regulation changes in the, in the near future for mandatory non-recertification. Okay. And, and we actually did have a resolution on that topic that was submitted, I believe it was last year in 21. Um, And, and we decided that that would have been way too complex on the national level uh, for a number, without going into details for a number of reasons. And it it was actually referred to the ACB transportation committee to look at and see if there's anything that could be done on a, a national level. But, I, you know, I would agree with Jeff that a state resolution and dealing with it on your your state and and uh, transportation district level is probably going to be your best way to go. Oh, thank you, because you know, unfortunately, our paratransit agency is not doing anything on it. They're concerned. They they're not concerned. They'll say, "Oh, we'll take it to a certain board that they have," and but they they haven't you know supported it. So it's very frustrating. Mm-hmm. So I guess the state, Levels of way to go. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you. You're welcome. And thanks for the question. And that's it for now.
just wanted to, I wanted to mention one thing. And, and, you know, we talk about the resolutions that have caused things to happen. I mean, look at we're going to have a whole presentation tomorrow on Teddy Joy's Law. Um, mm-hmm. And we had the uh, the bilingual resolution last year. And what do we have? But ACB Media, it may be taking small steps, but ACB Media is starting that move. And and so is the ACB website itself. And, you know, those kinds of things and and the, um, you know, the equity and diversity uh, piece and the mentorship stuff. Again, you know, we're really moving forward and maybe people had to sort of hit us all over the head a little bit to make some of this stuff happen. But it's it it, it it's a wake up call. Sometimes a resolution needs to be there as a wake-up call to the membership that we didn't realize we had a problem or an issue. Well, you know, and I've said this before that, you know, to run a 21st century corporation like ours, not a big nonprofit corporation, you're going to be more and more staff-driven. Unfortunately or fortunately, that is the way it has to be done because, you know, we, the volunteers out there, we don't have the expertise, the time, and, and, and all of these things that it takes to successfully operate such a corporation. We are lucky to have an incredible staff that is that has really improved our organization immensely. But by the same token, we don't want to lose the input and the ability to make policy that we have and the resolutions process is a major way to guide the direction of this organization and that's what the membership has and will continue to have and so um people should not be concerned with the you know the you know a lot of times i hear people say oh i writing a resolution is too hard for me well, we can help you write them. If you have an idea that you think needs to be included in our policy-making agenda, something to support or oppose or whatever, never feel um, concerned about y- your ability to bring it forth to the membership. That is that is your right, and it's the lifeblood of the organization, in my opinion. I fully agree. I, I, and that's one, and that's yeah. one reason I'm so happy that we're able to bring the the voting on resolutions back to the membership this year. Yeah, because it just it just strengthens that that anyone can submit a resolution, and now the members are, are the ones that get to vote on it again. And you know the whole thing about the staff driven organization. I think that, and people worry about losing control. Uh, you know the um, the membership losing control. I think sometimes you worry that when an organization gets big, it's so driven by fundraising that it forgets what it's supposed to do. Hmm. And you can't talk about this this big contributor because because they will stop giving us money or whatever. And it's like no, you know we are ACB and and we're we're out there saying to people. Um, if we can if we can come up with a reasonable way to explain a situation that needs to be remedied, let's get there and do it. No. Totally agree. Um, area code six oh eight ending in two one nine. 
Hi, um, this is Peter. And that, um, Jeff, when you were talking about modules, um, I don't know that uh, whether or not you were talking about posting on YouTube, but um, a couple of years ago, I got a call from a colleague of mine who's a uh, chaplain at a hospital. And that, um, you know, social workers are required by state law in Wisconsin if they don't, do not believe that the child is safe or going to be safe, that they have to report it. And so they were going that uh, this this uh, mother had given birth to twins, and uh, she was totally blind. And the social worker couldn't believe that um, she was able to care for those children. And so she was filing a report recommending that uh, she not be able to go home with her babies. Um, it and, sounds familiar. I know a lot yeah, about I know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know, and that, but that that um, this friend of mine called and said, "Is there something that I can do as a chaplain to to help this situation?" And um, I that we were able to go to the internet, and we found there's a, a demonstration by ACB an ACB mother um, on how to change the diapers of her baby, and and how to clean her baby, and how to care for her baby and it was like an amazing thing so when you're talking about these modules are you talking about uh, putting together some sort of uh, package that we could put on like youtube or something like that as a demonstration of things i know that um i mean there are a number of things that i would want to address if i were going to do something like that i haven't done it but that um, you know, as a patient in the hospital, when a nurse comes to touch you, it's like there are parts of me I don't want nurses touching. Um, I don't think that they, you know, without permission, that they don't have they don't have the right to just yank your blankets off of you. Um, but that to to create a sort of a medical healthcare awareness um, thing, and the one area that you didn't include were dental assistants and dentists. Oh, that, and that's not the only area. There, there's a lot. Yeah, well, I know, but I mean, it was like that yeah. is one but one, No, I actually yeah, I was looking at modules in terms of teaching people how to to self advocate to change the laws and the regulations. But equally, okay. but but that went. But as you say, we could certainly produce curriculums. Um, you know. And you know it can be done in a variety of ways. A a um, a state affiliate could, for example, um, contract with a healthcare plan. Now nowadays, with everything going to managed care, you could contract, say, with you know United Healthcare in your state or Anthem or whatever, and produce um, some curriculums. Um, and so they'd be informal. They they wouldn't have, you know, it wouldn't be. It would you wouldn't even need a requirement that physicians or, or nurses or whoever see these, as long as the entity you were contracting with made it a requirement. And so you know, there's more than one way to skin a cat, and and that's certainly a great way. And you know, we we maybe we ought to think about producing some um, of these types of curriculums that we could, you know, put on, on YouTube. And it's also a way to make some money. Yeah. And, and the other thing is we could, we could actually put a, you know, if a state affiliate did that, we could say any affiliates that come up with things like this, let's, let's build an ACB library. 
that people can go to of all kinds of different things, you know? Well, and then, and then be able to notify medical schools or, 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 you know, healthcare for provider training centers that, that the uh, information is available to them. Right. I mean, and this is almost an adjunct of our get up and get moving campaign. It's slightly, it's not slight, it's not completely on point, but I think that the main point here is a few years ago, we wouldn't have really dreamed of doing these types of things. But now with the combination of ACB media and, and becoming a, a multimedia sort of entity and the different campaigns that we're starting to undertake, some of the... Some things like the one you just proposed, Peter, aren't beyond the realm of possibility in the CB's future. And if if we can start to build a library, if we can start to build a library, be it written documentation and or videos, like what you were referring to of of the mother demonstrating how to care for her child, when the issues like that come up, because that's definitely not the first time we've heard of that kind of an issue. That's um, right. Yeah, it, it, it would be a library. You can... Or, or anybody could go to and say, you know, hey, a blind person, you know, a blind person or even blind parents can definitely care for a baby. See, here's yep. here's proof. Well, of that. It, it ultimately it made the difference between uh, that mother being able to go home with her babies and uh, mm-hmm. and not. Yeah. So, um, mm-hmm. I mean, I think that that those kinds of things, when they're available, um, you know, if we can. If we can make it a, a known that these kinds of resources are out there, that um, mm-hmm. I think it could save a lot of grief for a lot of people. You know, I mean, there is so much data. There is so much data out there on on Almost on YouTube. Much. Yeah, I mean, um, when I was when I had to tube feed my cat, I'm like, do I want to go to a YouTube video and see how to do this? And I said, no, I think I'd rather just do it with do it with the vet when I come pick him up. And so that's what I did. But I mean, I know I could have gone there, you know. Mm-hmm. We do have another question from Mary. All right. Can you, can you hear me? Peter for that question. Yeah. Oh. Can you hear me? Yes, we can. Yes. We can. Go ahead, okay. Mary. Yeah. I've had my hand raised for a while. I'm not quite sure how to do all this stuff, so I apologize. Oh, that's okay. You're um, here. Yeah. Uh, has there ever been a resolution? I attend or heard the thing about the websites becoming accessible. And I'm running into more and more companies that only will let you have information on the Internet and their website is not accessible. Have we ever had a resolution that a company be required to share the information another way until their website is accessible? Because I'm running into that more and more. Just go to our website. We don't offer it any other way, is what I'm told. I know we've had a lot of resolutions on website accessibility and various aspects of that. I can't think of any resolution, unless either Jeff or Chris can, but I can't think of any time that there's been a resolution that I'm aware of that... uh, that has uh, has said that a, a company would be required to give or provide information somehow other than on a website. Right. But I'm, like I said, I'm running into more and more companies that go, no, that's the only way we offer. You have to go to the mm-hmm. website. Even after mm-hmm. I explain to them, your website isn't accessible. Right. I need this information. They go, nope, that's the only way we give it on the website. Yeah, but, 
But, you know, the problem for some of those people is that they don't have enough people that work there. Any, I mean, you know, they've, they've, I'm, I'm not saying that they're right, but the person who's answering the phone or when you finally get a hold of somebody may well not even work there. They just may be an answering service because that company just doesn't doesn't have staff anymore. And they, these people were staff. Mm-hmm. And that, and that that's amazing. And actually, I was speaking to the executive office of the one company. So you know, it's just like mm. okay, now what? <laughs> don't don't give them any service. <laughs> don't spend yeah. your money with them. <laughs> well, it's kind There's of hard to not to. deal with your bank. <laughs> you know? Switch banks. I have. I run into it again. I even filed with the DOJ once, and their response was, we're not going to handle it. Hire an attorney, which is their response more and more these days. And I guess they're just too busy. Okay. Well, I just okay. wondered if there had oh, ever been a resolution like that. Unfortunately, I think websites are still enough of a murky area that uh, yeah, it would probably require some kind of a lawsuit against it. But um yeah, that's an that's an interesting one. When they say, you know, "Sorry, all our information is on the website. Go there. Uh, have a nice day." Um, that does seem like it would definitely bring up an interesting, uh, interesting legal issue. Oh, Jeff, what do you think on that? Yeah, no, I, I cut out a little bit, so I didn't hear her whole. The the, the question was essentially, um, she asked, "Have we ever had a resolution?" Uh, dealing with website accessibility where a company, you know, a bank, et cetera, says that all their information is only available on the website. And if you want information, you have to go there. It's not available in any other way, shape, or form. Um, and, and I was saying, I don't think we've ever had a, a resolution on that particular issue, but it also seems like it would be a little bit of a of a gray area as far as any accessibility or legal issues. Well, sometimes that's a lie, unless they are totally an internet bank, uh, you know, that it is available in other ways, so they're not telling you the complete truth. Um, and, you know... What did they do? I, I, yeah. What did they do before there was the internet on, at that bank? Excuse me? <laughs> it didn't exist. <laughs> Okay, you have sometimes their website isn't fully accessible. I, I would certainly, you know, reach out to, you know, a legal advocacy uh, entity in your state. I don't know where you live, but Monica, did you say you found somebody? Do we have, do we have any other questions, Monica? Betsy's here, Jeff. Can you hear me? Betsy's here. Betsy. Betsy, I, I just wanted to promote my daughter at the moment. You were talking about what YouTube's were available and stuff. She has a whole site that um, is called Children Raised Around the Blind, and she's actually preparing courses right now for people to introduce them what all blind people can do since she was raised around one. And so her site is Children Raised Around the Blind, and she's getting all sorts of hits on it because she is promoting what we are capable of doing, such as, you know, taking care of children, et cetera. And so she's already starting to offer free courses for a while, and then she'll eventually charge for them. 
That's great. Oh, that's awesome. So that it's coming from a person who was raised around a blind person. Yeah. Parent, you know, so. yeah. And it's the only time there's ever been a group. There's no other group out there for children of blind parents. So she started several years ago. And your daughter's mm-hmm. definitely a go-getter. I know that. Well, you know, there was just, so I saw some over the weekend, somebody saying, I need somebody who um, is a blind parent of sighted kids. And the yeah, child it's called is Children Raised Around the Blind. It's right. Mm-hmm. Good. But I don't remember who even sent where I saw the yeah, and 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 I thought well somebody else is going to have to answer that because all I have is cats. <laughs> no, I have four kids. So. I have four. Well, this that's... one really loves the community, so she's doing what she can to train everyone else. That is definitely such a uh, unique. I think situation and, and a um, little bit off topic here, but at our California Council of Blind Convention this summer, or uh, May, we're going to have a, a panel on that exact thing too of sighted of, uh, children of blind parents. Yeah, because it, that's a great, or get hold of her because she's into it. I mean, that's her thing right now. That's her pastime. Is and, going that and is it a dot org? You said children raised around the blind. Is it a, a dot org? Yeah, or I assume net, it's or? calm, probably. I don't know. I've never looked at it. <laughs> oh, <laughs> if you do only search for that name, so you can find it pretty quickly, I would think. Yeah, we'll, we'll have great. to check it out. But <clears throat> it's awesome. Thanks for sharing. And those are all your questions for now. All right. Well, we certainly appreciate everyone that has contributed today. Um, I, I, you never know where discussions like this will take us, and with folks like Peter and Betsy and others, you know, coming in and, you know, giving tidbits of information that I, I really think will get people to thinking about, you know, what we can do in the future in terms of implementing our resolutions. And that's the whole idea of this panel. So, uh, and speaking of resolutions, unless we have any other hands up right now, Jeff, could I give a, a quick yes. reminder? Remember this year that our uh, deadline for resolutions is going to be May 1st. And uh, I believe we're having those submitted to advocacy at acb.org. So if you have a, a resolution that you have a draft of, if you have just an idea for a resolution, if you have a question about a resolution, Go ahead and send it to acb.org or uh, advocacy at acb.org and they can get it uh, passed along to me as the current chair and we can get in touch with you and, and chat about it. All right. Thank you, Jeff. My commercial's over. All right. We want Gabe to work hard. So, you know, get those. <laughs> and Jeff is a member of the committee. So everything gets uh, sifted to him <laughs> or at least as much as I can. <laughs> Working on delegation. <laughs> yeah, it's always been a good skill. I like skill that particular. You probably prefer the. You probably prefer doing the delegating than being delegated. Yes. Being delegated too. I do. <laughs> <laughs> well, as, as, as the president of your affiliate knows, the chair of the committee that you're on there, I love uh, being in that reverse role. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I hope this has inspired people to think about how we can improve all of our advocacy efforts, because that's really what it's all about in this organization. And if we've done that, then this panel has been a success. So I want to thank both my panelists, uh, Gabe and Chris, and 
I want to thank all of you that have listened to us today. Yeah, thank you to everybody that's listened, and thanks to Jeff and Chris. It's been a pleasure being on this panel with you two. And just remember, everybody, as they all say, keep on advocating. Well, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to our discussion of advocacy at federal, state, and local levels, or different levels of advocacy, um, primarily from the perspective of um, pedestrian safety and transportation issues. And I would like to first just um, introduce briefly the other members of our panel. We have, I am Becky Davidson. I'm co, I'm chair of the Pedestrian uh, Environment Access Committee, formerly known as the Environmental Access Committee, but now we're the PEAC. And I also would like to uh, welcome Sheila Styron, who chairs our Transportation Committee. And these two committees work in tandem quite often. So um, you often, when one of us is here, the other one is here. We also I'm also have a us, co-chair, to be honest. I, I, yeah, Claire Stanley I have is a my co-chair. co-chair. <laughs> yes, Sue Crawford is mine. Um, and then we also have... Um, Chris Bell, who's an ACB board member and a longtime expert on the Americans with Disabilities Act, has quite a long history um, with that and is, um, is has joined us. And our presenter today is Beth Osborne, and Beth is the uh, director of Transportation for America, which is a nonprofit that um, that works through transportation. Um, issues to uh, ensure that people uh, have transportation to necessary um, situations, uh, jobs, services, etc., regardless of what mode of transportation or their abilities um, to either to use it. So I don't want to spend a lot of time introducing Beth because she has a, a lot to, to tell us a lot of background working both in the federal government and the legislative sector, as well as now with um, Transportation for America. So Beth, we welcome you and thank you for joining us. We look forward to hearing what you have to say. Thank you so much for inviting me here today. I really appreciate it. And it's uh, it's exciting to continue to build out a partnership with you know those that we know are entirely reliant Uh, on a safe system for walking and getting around outside of a car, but are so often denied uh, exactly what we're looking for. Um, As Becky said, I'm Beth Osborne. I'm the Director of Transportation for America. Uh, We do tend to work nationally. That does not mean just federally. We do work with a lot of localities and states, but we do have a national perspective, uh, and therefore we are pulled into a lot of federal work. So what I'm going to talk about today is uh, what came out of the infrastructure bill that was passed uh, into law last fall and where there's opportunity there. I'm going to talk about uh, some of the challenges that still lay ahead, and then I'm going to talk about what we can do about those challenges. So starting with the infrastructure bill also known as the IIJA, something I find hard to say and means nothing. So I just call it the infrastructure bill, if that's okay with everybody. Um, 
the the upside of the infrastructure bill uh, is that it was it provides significantly more funding uh, for a lot of programs that my organization finds very important. But the downside is it provides significantly more funding for a lot of programs that my organization finds problematic. Uh, the bipartisan agreement when it comes to transportation is that all boats shall rise, including the ones that we wish would sink. Um, so uh, let me get into why, why I say that. I'm going to start again on the positive side. There are some really interesting changes to the program. The biggest one is what used to be a tiny, tiny inner city passenger rail program is now a really sizable program, almost as big as our national transit program. Um, that is 100% a result of a president who has ridden Amtrak from Delaware to DC and is very committed to providing the same kind of service to people in other parts of the country. There's also uh, historically high funding that will go out by competition, competitive grant programs. Those are the programs where people propose projects uh, that are eligible for the program and they compete against each other uh, for awards that USDOT offers. The overwhelming majority of programs go out by formula, which means there are legislative parameters put on how the money is shared amongst all the parties, usually state departments of transportation, and USDOT must follow that formula no matter what, no matter how the states perform or, or don't perform. And the idea is this is the money that they can use mostly within their discretion and as long as they follow the eligibility rules in the law, there's really no more oversight. So the, the, there are historically more competitive programs. However, they are still a small portion of the overall program, about 5%. There are also some new programs focused on issues like safety, complete streets, equity, climate, resilience. And, uh, and those are important as well. What is also important to remember is that of the money that is going to uh, state departments of transportation, the main recipients of funding, 75% of the money goes to them through two programs that are very flexible, that can be used for most anything. And all of the programs that are receiving a lot of attention, like the new carbon reduction program or the new complete streets program. These are the ones that fit in the rest of the pie. So for example, the climate program known as the carbon reduction program makes up 2% of formula funds as compared to 75% of these big flexible funds. Um, the, uh, in terms of resilience, that's a 3% of the pot. The Highway Safety Improvement Program is 6% of the pot. And I mention this because I want people not to focus on the program that has the name of your priority on it. I want us all to focus on all of the money. And what the tradition has been is if there's a program called 
safety program, all the safety advocates fight over getting that money and how to spend that money well, even when it's five or 6% of spending. And they let the other huge portion of the pie get spent any way the DOTs want them to. We want to focus on, you know, if safety is a priority, every dollar needs to go to safety. And so we still have a challenge ahead of us. Um, these are, like I said, highly flexible dollars. But it means that the states have the flexibility to choose whether or not they focus on priorities like safety. So, uh, and then you will hear that there is, uh, there, there are flexibilities and a lot of times they will be called new. Most of them are not new. Most of them have always been there. They just have not been utilized by the departments who get the money because these are departments that have been created uh, to build roadways and mostly high-speed roadways. So, the reason we have the problems with our current system has to do with the focus of these departments of transportation. My organization creates a report called Dangerous by Design. Um, part of my team is the National Complete Streets Coalition. And Dangerous by Design has shown every time it comes out that fatalities are increasing for those uh, walking and rolling. And they are increasing disproportionately for Black and Native Americans. Black Americans have an 82% higher rate of fatality as pedestrians and Native Americans and, and uh, Native Alaskans, 221% higher rate of fatality as a pedestrian. The exposure is the same in urban and rural settings, uh, bad, both places, and almost identical. And 2020 and 2021 were two years that had record increases in overall fatalities, but also in pedestrian fatalities. We are preparing the newest, uh, latest Dangerous by Design as we speak. In fact, right before this meeting, we had a planning call about the analysis we're doing of the data from 2020 that were just released. The reason for this ever-increasing danger to those of us who either choose or, or must travel outside of a vehicle a lot of the time is that the priority in the design and the building of our roadways is for speed. Um, it's for moving cars quickly. Most of the programs grow out of the highway, national highway system and interstate system uh, uh, programs, and they now apply in a one-size-fits-all way to most every road built at any level of government. Uh, the roadways are speedy. There are not accommodations for people who are outside of a car. And the way we develop our communities ends up uh, spread it, very spread out. So even uh, you know where you might want to walk, your destinations become further and further apart and they all play into each other. If you build a roadway for speed, people aren't gonna build uh, you know, a dense row of businesses and retail and uh, restaurants there because no one wants to have their dinner right by a, a highway. They wanna have their dinner by a beautiful main street. Um, and uh, as that, that development spreads out, more people have to drive, now you've got congestion, now you've gotta widen the roads, 
fewer people are going to walk. It all creates a constant momentum towards building more and more high-speed roads and cutting those who want to get around or need to get around other ways out of the system. Um, basically, the, uh, the foundation is when we built the interstates and the highways, um, we built for speed and we knew in the 1950s and 40s as the national highway system and then the interstate system started getting built that you could not have development, intersections, driveways, or people near high speed. So we built the interstates separated from those things. However, we spent the last 40 to 50 years taking what we knew then that you couldn't have high speed autos by uh, driveways, people, intersections, and development, and sticking those high speeds right there, right by those very things. And then we're shocked that it creates a dangerous situation. So basically what we need to be teaching the professionals is where you have development, intersections, driveways, and people, the speeds need to come way down. Think Main Street. Where you want speed, you have to separate it from all those points of conflict. Think the interstates. And the reason for this is the faster a person drives, the more the driver's field of vision narrows, meaning their ability to spot a potential conflict goes way down, while at the same time, their ability to respond and avoid a conflict goes down too. And then a crash is more likely to be deadly at those higher speeds. At 20 miles per hour, more crashes, most crashes can be avoided, but where there is a crash, 90% of pedestrians will survive that crash. At 30 miles per hour, the survival rate drops to 60%. And at 40 miles per hour, it drops to 20%. However, the entire program of transportation at all levels is designed on speeds. When we design a road, we start with a standard called level of service, which is about the speed and the density of vehicles. Pedestrians don't fit in it at all. We don't design for pedestrians. They are an add-on at the end at best. Performance standards that, that DOTs, Departments of Transportation, rely on, like congestion, they don't mean what we mean by congestion. They really just look at vehicle speed. So if you go 60 miles per hour in circles, you have successfully defeated congestion. But if you go 20 miles per hour uh, and arrive at your destination in five minutes, and the speed limit was 30 miles per hour, that is a congestion that must be fixed. So they're not, they're really thinking in those interstate terms rather than whether or not you can arrive where you're going within a convenient and reasonable period of time. And wildly, where congestion is reduced, that is counted as a safety benefit in spite of the fact that on our regular surface roads, when we reduce congestion, we speed up travel and we know that higher speed travel is less safe. Uh, so it is, uh, like I said, everything is really oriented towards reducing uh, uh, hindrances to the driver. And unfortunately, pedestrians are often considered uh, hindrances. Um, this creates particularly harsh uh, circumstances for people of color, for lower income people, and for folks in rural areas. Um, we often forget that uh, rural areas have communities where people live and that rural is not just the great wide open. 
And so when I'm talking about rural areas that are dangerous to pedestrians, it's where we tend to find a lot of pedestrians in those rural small towns and those, those rural clusters of development. Over 1 million households in predominantly rural counties have no car. There are almost 300 counties that have at least 10% of households with no access to a car, and the majority of them are in rural counties, mostly in places like Kentucky, West Virginia, South Dakota, Arkansas, uh, the Carolinas, Georgia, Alabama, my home state of Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alaska. Household in rural areas and urban areas are finding that their, their trips are getting longer as the things they need are being placed further apart. And the solution they're offered is more high-speed roadways. Um, so we actually did a study recently that found that the trip burden is falling the most on those that live in low-density rural areas. Secondly, it's in low-density urban areas. And compact rural and compact urban are being affected the least. So there's some interesting things to learn there, which is one, uh, while there are differences between rural and urban areas, there are a lot similar between rural and urban centers, like my community of Columbia Heights in Washington, D.C., which is my little rural town in the middle of Washington, D.C., that just happens to back up to the little rural town of Mount Pleasant which is the next neighborhood over. Um, and now I'm going to finish up with what to do. Um, the number one piece of recommendation I can provide in terms of addressing the problems with the transportation system, and again, none of them are solved by the infrastructure bill. We just have more money in a program with flexibility that will require us to advocate for changes in the approach. My number one piece of advice is do not take no for an answer. If you are told by someone in a public works agency or department of transportation that they can't provide an accommodation you are looking for, ask them where that impediment comes from. Where is it written? It's very important to know if their impediment is in the law, a regulation, a simple procedure, or a custom, because the way we tackle that impediment is very different. But you might find that you, by asking this question, help the transportation official that you are talking with learn that they have a misperception of what their rules are. Sometimes it is simply a result of not realizing that what has become a custom isn't a rule. That happens to all of us. You get so used to doing things some way, you don't realize that it was a choice made by your agency and they have the full opportunity to change uh, their direction. Sometimes folks in the agency don't realize that the law has changed because if you are a design engineer, you are probably not reading the US code with any frequency. So I, my policy director just came out of the Department of Transportation in Washington, DC. And he can say that uh, studying policy in this capacity has pointed out to him that a lot has changed that even he didn't realize. So it's useful to make sure that those engineers and planners are going and checking on what the law says 
um, as of today. And then sometimes there are folks in agencies that say that they can't do something when they mean they don't want to do something. And the way you ferret that out is ask the question, make them show you why they can't do it. And uh, if the answer is because we don't want to, we need to make them state it and admit that they have made a choice because that is can be used uh, in, in a lot of ways as well. I will point out that we have created uh, a, an infrastructure bill portal with a lot of resources there about what programs are eligible for different types of funding. Um, we have a, a fact sheet on active transportation, um, specifically so that people don't have to go learn every program, but rather say, I wish I could fund more transit in my community. And it just has all of the programs that can be used for transit with a citation in the law so that if you're told that that program can't be used for that project you want, whether it be transit or active transportation, you can point them to the citation in the law that says, in fact, they can. Um, I know that uh, the, the, the blind community has also faced additional struggles. Um, a lot of times the added needs for uh, people who are blind are dismissed in departments of transportation as you know, too difficult to address maybe not addressing enough people through their own ignorance of the fact that the very things that we might do to help people who are blind actually help us all. One of the biggest things we need is more signalized crossings in so many parts of this country. Um, and that is every bit as important to those who are sighted. The fact of the matter is, and I don't know if this will make people feel better or worse, but those same planners and engineers are just as dismissive of me, uh, you know, a white middle-class sighted human being when, when I go ask for a crossing as for any other group. I choose to take that as empowering that they're just shutting us down because they don't want to do something different than they do. Uh, that they do on a regular basis. And there are ways to deal with people like that. Um, one of which is uh, to bring in the elected officials who often duck these issues. They hide behind technical decision makers, pretending they have no responsibility for the agencies that they oversee. And they should not be permitted to do it. If they come in and cite their engineers, my organization cites the results and points out to those elected leaders that they were elected to fix the results. And if they wish to hide behind the engineers who are producing such bad results, then they also own those results. Um, Dangerous by Design has been a very helpful way to do that because it ranks communities. In our next version, we are going to make clear that just because a community is not in the top 20 most dangerous uh, for pedestrians communities in the country doesn't mean they're going in the right direction. It just means somebody else is doing that much worse, which is unfortunately uh, often the case. 
Um, also recognizing that our roadways are becoming significantly more complicated. That's a problem for drivers because they have to look in a lot more directions, but it's only a problem for drivers when they're going too fast for that complexity. So again, bringing down those speeds and changing the rules over how speeds are set is a big priority in my organization and my partners at places like America Walks. Um, and we are trying to work with other organizations that have more technical chops on these issues. So the National Association of City Transportation Officials has been extraordinarily helpful at writing their own design guidelines. And I think uh, they are starting to really focus on the complexity of the roadway itself and how to make space for all kinds of different modes, including regular bikes, electric bikes, scooters, uh, like I said, people walking and rolling and vehicles and transit uh, uh, vehicles and trucks and all the other things we find in our cities, including today, places in the street to eat um, and, uh, and, and parklets and all kinds of, of, of different uh, uses. Um, I would follow what they're up to in terms of more technical specifications about how to design a road in this um, ever-increasing uh, and complex environment, which just happens to be the old-fashioned way the roads were before uh, auto advocates cleared the road of everything except for those driving for the simplicity of the automobile. I will say uh, just a couple more things. One is a great way to teach localities and states um, that we can do things differently is through demonstration projects. We do a lot of technical uh, assistance with states and localities that involve a very low cost, and I mean in the tens of thousands of dollars, demonstration project on a strip of roadway using things like paint and uh, uh, delineators and uh, it, just various low cost treatments, temporary treatments that change the way both drivers and non-drivers interact with that roadway. And by doing that, it allows the agency to it shows them that something different can be done, but it also shows them internally what are the barriers to doing things differently. So instead of treating these projects as a series of one-offs, all of which has to be a fight, they can address actual uh, systematic issues so that these sorts of projects, particularly multimodal projects, those that accommodate those outside of a car, are more standard and easy to build. It also allows the public that might be a little skeptical of change, and that is a natural thing for a human to be skeptical of, to get to see it on a temporary basis and to, to feel it and touch it and understand how it impacts them so that they can give more useful feedback to the transportation agency. Too often, we give people sketches that you know, I work in transportation and I don't understand what it's going to mean when it's part of my built environment. I can't close, I, I can't go into my mind and create a virtual 
reality environment and understand what that new situation is going to mean for me. But that's kind of what we expect from everybody. And then we don't understand why the feedback changes over time, especially once people come in contact with the changes that they're making. Demonstration projects help people feel the change and be able to directly engage with the engineers about what they like and what they don't like. And therefore, it makes changes easier, not just on the agency, but on the community and those impacted. We've seen incredible success come from just doing one or two demonstration projects within one jurisdiction. I'll also say it's important to seek regional solutions. If you're doing it jurisdiction by jurisdiction, you're going to have a problem because that doesn't create a network, starting with the fact that roads within one jurisdiction are owned by different levels of government. Some roads will be state-owned, some will be county-owned, some will be owned by the locality. If the locality is building a road that's safe to walk on, but the county and the state aren't, you, you're going to face different levels of danger every time you cross the street. And that is not what we're talking about. Imagine if to use the roadway as a driver, you had to change the car you were in every time you switched into uh, a different jurisdiction's roadway. It would be non-functional. So it's non-functional when all levels of government are using standards that are of varying use and safety to those outside of a car. It's also why it's dangerous to outsource the building of active transportation accommodations to developers. They only have control over the space in front of their property. And if they built roadways that way, we would have segments of roadway that end from, from lot to lot. That's what we have a lot with sidewalks. Um, we can't allow that. The city has to take, and, and the county and the state have to take ownership over travel for those outside of a car the same way they do inside of a car. So again, I will end by saying we have a new infrastructure bill with a lot of new money in it. It provides all of the tools and flexibility needed to make our roadways safer and all the flexibility needed for states that might not care about that result to duck that responsibility. And therefore, it's going to be of the utmost importance to Make the elected representatives, the leaders of your community, face the results, both in terms of safety, but also in terms of access to opportunity and necessities for those outside of a car. Even those these days that often, quote, choose, unquote, to drive, may not realize it was never a choice. They may not have consciously said to themselves, um, I, I affirmatively choose to spend 8,000 extra dollars a year on a new car rather than get around outside of a car. But often they're making that choice, that quote choice, unquote, because if they didn't make it, they couldn't reach the things that they need to reach. That's not a choice. That is, uh, that, that is a, a really appalling circumstance. And then not everybody has that choice, either due to, uh, you know, their own ability to drive themselves. Um, I couldn't because uh, back when I was in college and, and for many years outside of college, I couldn't afford a car. 
So it wasn't a choice I could make. Um, and, and people face many impediments to getting around by car. It's time to force our elected leaders to account for a system that excludes so many of us. And even those who aren't excluded forces them to own something that loses value by the very hour in order to accomplish the basic necessities of their day or put their their physical safety at risk to do it outside of a vehicle. I am happy to answer any questions that folks have or brainstorm problems that you've run into um, and ways to fight back against some of the most common excuses for not doing what uh, you know, most of the, the developed world has been doing for decades. I would love to go first. This is Sheila. Thank you so much for being here and for your energy enthusiasm. And I cannot wait to go to the Transportation for America portal and check out some of your FAQs and get some of these questions to the mysteries of how does this work? How does that work? I think that'll be a really valuable tool for everybody. Um, the question I would like to ask you right now is I'd like you to circle back to when you were talking about um, the elected officials hiding behind the traffic engineers and, and how there's sort of an endless circle game. And I know I've done a lot of work um, for accessible pedestrian signals and um, we as blind people believe and we're getting closer to getting it legislated, getting it to be a best standard that any time there is a traffic signal, it needs to be an accessible pedestrian signal. Um, but so you've got people who think it would be much safer to have a signal somewhere and there aren't any. And, and I think it, it's even worse in the cities. We have a lot of uh, crossing signals that are not um that are not accessible, but we have a lot of them where they're needed. But in the country, I know in rural environments, they don't even have them. But one of the things that I have encountered in my ad local advocacy here in Kansas City is they like to quote their engineer studies. They like to say, well, you know, it's not warranted here or it's warranted there. It's not warranted here. So when somebody uh, quotes um, that kind of, um, and I know you say it's not written in stone, so I would just like a little bit more ammunition to go after those guys when they say, well, you know, we put sensors here, we've stood out and watched this intersection. It's not warranted, yet people have been killed there and people don't feel safe crossing. Yeah, I like to um, uh, take it out of the technical speak and say it back at them with the elected there. That's one of my favorite things to do. So, um, you know, they mean warrant in terms of, of their technical rules about when they accommodate uh, uh, particular people based on existing or pre-existing demand. And, you know, they talk about warrants as if they're permits or things like that. Um, and so, uh, I like to find um, uh, synonyms for a lot of their terms and and try uh, to ask them if that's is that's really what they mean. Um, so a synonym for warranted is needed. And so 
I like to say, so what you're saying is it is in your engineering judgment that there is no need to make it safe for the people who might have to cross here to cross here, like the people who crossed here and were killed or the people who wish they could cross there, but feel unsafe. You don't think that that is warranted and make them deal with it. One thing you need to know is engineers don't see themselves as making policy. This is a really important thing. They think they're following a standard and that the policy is someone else's decision. So this is a point to create a little tension because it is the electeds that allow the underlying policy to stand. So I like to point out to the engineer that they have made the value judgment that until people risk their lives there in big enough numbers, they don't consider it necessary, another synonym to warranted, to, uh, to make it safe. That, and then I like to put the question in terms of the underlying policy decision. How many people have to risk their lives there before you'll feel comfortable making it safe for them to cross? What, what, is, what does your warrant say in terms of how many people must put themselves in physical danger at that point? We, we need to know for our advocacy efforts. And are you suggesting that we put together enough people to make that dangerous crossing for your observation? Those tend to be rather in your face and difficult conversations, but unfortunately it's what they need to face. It is what they're saying and they'll try to duck it. But uh, that, that, is, that is the determination they're making. Now, those engineers may not have a say over the documents that require that analysis. And that is why you need to have uh, the pressure from the electeds above. And that's where you can kind of rescue the engineer and say to the elected, you've left this person with no alternative. You have okayed a policy that says until a certain number of people from my community risk their lives, that he does not have the power to put in a crossing. Is that what you meant? That starts to break things down. That's incredibly good advice. Um, Chris, did you have any questions or anything you wanted to bring up before we open yes, it to you, raise Becky. hands? And, and thank you, Beth, for your presentation. Um, one thing that uh, strikes me listening to you is how important it could be uh, for people to form and use coalitions, whether they're uh, speaking to somebody at their state department of transportation in their capital city, or whether they're going to deal with the local planning and zoning commission. Um, one of the problems that we have as blind people is that uh, some of our natural allies, uh, sometimes like America Walks or uh, Vision Zero, uh, or even folks in complete streets, they also don't understand uh, some of the difficulties that we face as blind and low vision people in trying to negotiate uh, the world, whether it is a lack of sidewalks, um, so that we have to, in a sense, walk in the street, 
or whether that we have to share a relatively narrow sidewalk with bicyclists and e-bikes and e-scooters and skateboarders, um, or uh, uh, whether uh, there's just uh, floating bus stops that make it very difficult for us to cross the street because there's no way that we can tell if it's uh, for, set up for bicycles. We can't necessarily hear a bicycle. So it's very difficult for us to deal with those issues. So not only do we have to educate the decision makers, the elected decision makers, the traffic engineers, um, the planning boards, et cetera, we also have to educate the people that are working to improve uh, walking and multimodal transportation. And I think that's something we have to do if we're going to be successful. And I wondered whether you had any thoughts about that. Chris, I'm so glad you asked that question. I'm going to answer the easier one first and then come back to your latter question, which is a big challenge. Um, one is I think all of us in the advocacy community need to, uh, coalitions are so important because Unfortunately, loudness seems to be what's important these days in terms of, of changing people's minds. Again, when you know these things, you can use them to your advantage, but it's almost more important to show up to support what we want than it is to show up to demand a change. What I have found is when changes have been made to the design of a roadway, those who are fearful of change or those who feel like they've been disadvantaged because maybe they have to stop for an entirety of 10 seconds to allow a human being to safely cross, they show up and fuss very, very, very loudly. So having a coalition that can inform people of where major decisions are being made and particularly show up for those elected officials that are pushing for change and back them up is going to be huge. Um, it has been very frustrating to see how many elected officials have tried to do the right things, but then, you know, the, the, the loud folks who, you know, just don't want change or don't want to give up any advantage at all uh, are able to stifle it. So that's the easier question. The second question is a phenomenal one, which is how to remind people that their experience is not the same as everybody else's experience. And this is something I think we are all facing in a multitude of ways. You know, I, uh, I have been forced as a, a white woman to realize the challenges of walking around with a different color skin which I probably understood on some level before, but getting into the specifics over the last few years as Black Lives Matter have you know, gained in, uh, in attention and raising some of these issues and other groups has forced us to look at a lot more detail. The same thing is true, not just for the blind community, but you know, the, those who are using mobility assisted devices, these are people that have to negotiate the world very differently and differently from each other. And yet we have to find a way to accommodate all people. What I find a little frustrating in, um, in, in the community is a lack of recognition of how the changes needed for the blind are also often very, very helpful for all of us. I find that's true in so many cases. The, uh, the ramps on uh, or the curb cuts were not built for me, 
but boy, did they make a big difference to me, you know, when I was pushing a stroller or when I hurt my knee. Um, and, and the, the notice, uh, for the accessible crossings that this side of the street is the one where you can go. I have found particularly useful, even for me, um, you know, when it's a particularly wide intersection, we are going to have to find ways to talk about how, as long as you're putting in a crossing, why are we not making it accessible? The difference in cost is, is so minimal. It's, it's ridiculous. And find ways to put that into some of the standards that we are creating. I see some opportunity in working with groups like the National Association of City Transportation Officials. I see some opportunity in new techniques for storytelling that I think have really broken through on, on some of these issues. Um, we did uh, a series with The Last Dangerous by Design that uh, that showed for, I mean, for the sighted community, obviously, but um, what it's like to move around in a wheelchair in most of America and kind of forcing people to look at it, which again, understood in theory, but being, being forced to put yourself in that person's place matters. So maybe that's something we can work on together going forward is explaining some of those specifics. And while I have found it very difficult to share a sidewalk with a bicycle, which I also can't hear very well, um, it's even worse when you can't see the bike coming. Uh, and a lot of times they're not giving us notice. They're not ringing their bells. They're not saying, hey, I'm on your left or anything like that. I would love to look at ways to work with you all to tell that story, um, maybe through Dangerous by Design or other uh, reports that we do, and look for ways to build the needs of uh, those uh, who are blind into a lot of the standards for what it what makes a, a good uh, best practice in a multimodal road so that when a city comes to us and says, what should we do? We're saying what they should do for everybody. That's terrific. Thank you ever so much for saying that. I think we'll take you up on that. <laughs> I Definitely. Okay. Yeah. One of the more effective um, ways that I've been involved, not so much here in North Carolina, but when I lived in New York State was um, we would set a, a range for, um, we'd have an orientation and mobility specialist and, you know, some other people. I worked for a guide dog school. So we had some guide dog instructors help us with this too. We would be invited local transportation officials, engineers, and elected officials to come and experience what it's like to cross the street without being able to see and what, you know, what an accessible pedestrian signal meant and what it would do. And once they had to put on a sleep shade and walk with someone across the street, and then we would say, we would have them stand at the intersection and say, okay, tell me when you think it's safe for you to cross. And they would just be so blown away that, you know, they couldn't do it or they eventually could, but they were terrified. And I, and a number of them really did change their minds and start to help us advocate. Um, that was, you know, that was kind of, a, and I'm wondering if, if people from NACTO might be willing to help us pull that, do some of those kinds of things. 
I think that's um, a wonderful suggestion. I also think it might be a good suggestion for advocates themselves. Those very mm-hmm. partners that Chris was talking about, mm-hmm. you know, maybe thinking about doing that sort of activity around one uh, an America Walks uh, meeting or uh, an ACTO meeting or something like that. Uh, also, some of these pull some uh, elected officials in. Having that, yeah, we had done that. Yeah, that helped. Great, that helped. Um, Chris or Sheila, do you have any other questions before we see if there's any raised hands? I would love to hear what the audience has to ask. Okay, so do we need to give instructions on hand raising, or are they already going up, Chanel? They have been going up. We currently (laughs) have six, and first up is Paul Hunt. Paul, you may unmute. Hello, um, I have a question. The presentation is very, very good. I'm hearing something for the first time this year about shared spaces. And there's spaces that can be shared by automobiles, pedestrians, bicyclists. That's the concept scares the heck out of me. Can you tell us about those? Sure. Um, You know, it's one of the things that, uh, that was immediately obliterated in the early auto times. So when cars first came, you know, became relatively prevalent, the the number of crashes and fatalities, particularly with uh, pedestrians, just skyrocketed. And actually, uh, the auto manufacturers generated the word jaywalking, which means country bumpkin walking, um, was to tell pedestrians they didn't belong in the street. And we've had a long march back to creating the complex roadway environment that we abandoned back then. But what it really relies on is incredibly slow movement by everybody that is on any kind of machine, including a bike. Um, we've seen some really successful shared streets in different parts of the country. Here in Washington, D.C., there's one right by uh, the uh, the river uh, that is uh, basically a five-mile-per-hour road for drivers, but really anybody can just mill about the space. And it, uh, it they seem to have extremely high uh, uh, safety records, very good safety records, because it forces everyone in the roadway to communicate with each other in some way, shape, or form. And it does create more of a shared environment. Um, It's had a lot of success abroad. These were not unusual things um, uh, in in European uh, cities and even in Canada. Uh, The US has just started to try them again. But there are not a lot of examples yet so uh, it's going to take a, a lot more work uh, to see, to even have a list of best, best practices because they are so unusual. And I would say, and I would add to for Paul that I've looked at some of those studies, uh, both in Australia and in Europe, and um, I haven't found any that actually made an effort to include people with vision impairments or other disabilities in those studies in the methodology. Um, And I think that's a, that's a shortcoming of those studies. I'm sure you're right. 
and it is a, a, a gigantic shortcoming. When you're ready, your next hand comes from Ray Campbell, who is unmuted. All right. Good afternoon. Thank you for hey there, Ray. this presentation. Hey there, everybody. You're always unmuted, Ray. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's all right. No, the guy was in the peanut gallery there. Um, first of all, Beth, excellent presentation. Um, one of the uh, one of the things that we often get asked, though, and I'm involved in some litigation, uh, accessible pedestrian signals right now. Uh, but one of the things that we often get asked when we're asking for something like an accessible pedestrian signal is two things we get asked. How much is it going to cost? And the, the, the bigger one that frustrates me even more is how, how many people are going to benefit from this if we spend this money and put this in? Can you give us some counter arguments that we can use to some of those? Thanks very much. Uh, well, first, can I ask you a question? Um, are, so are you a lawyer then? Are you actually in charge of some of these cases? No, Ray's, uh, Ray's a, a member of the uh, <clears throat> ACB of Metropolitan Chicago. I'm here. It has a lawsuit here, against um, the city of Chicago. Okay, I and, see. Yep. yep. Well, number one, I want to find more lawyers to bring more suits because, frankly, one of the most successful things we need to do is make it much more painful for these uh, departments to ignore uh, those walking, biking, taking transit, uh, those who need accessible crossings, things like that. Um, having rolled up my sleeves and gotten to work with those engineers within the department, I can tell you they are very afraid of lawsuit if they deviate from the design in the manuals that are built only for people driving. And they couldn't be less afraid of lawsuit from the other side or people dying because we haven't made space for pedestrians. So and just a quick time like, check is five minutes left. Sorry about that. Go no ahead. No problem. I think we need to adjust their benefit cost analysis before they ask us these questions. So that I will say up top. Um, and the other thing is keep in mind that in terms of benefit, when the engineers are talking about benefit, they're talking about something that they call travel time savings. They don't mm -hmm. actually measure the time saved by any individual traveler. They just look at the speeds and they assume if they're faster, people are saving time even though we've learned that when you go faster, there are things you have to do that lengthen trips so that we don't they actually lose time, but they can count it as a saving. So that's a benefit versus the cost of stopping travel. Um, we've been working on measuring overall access to jobs and essential services, um, which you can do using uh, the technology you have in a smartphone, basically. It's using mapping technology. <laughs> you know, it's not even a new technology, uh, but we're trying to get the states to use that relatively old technology so that they can see how their system is creating the economic benefit of connecting people to the jobs and services they need or hindering and blocking that uh, uh, through not doing it. Also getting into the cost per household of transportation when walking is not an option. Um, so that's another- Especially these days. 
Yes, exactly right. <laughs> it's a big cost savings to not have to drive everywhere, which is why those who live in walkable communities pay so much more to live there. We've made those communities hard to build and illegal to build in a lot of places. So we've kept the supply way down. The demand's been through the roof for decades and we're shocked that the cost oh. goes up. So right. I'd look to quantify some of those other things. And then okay. I would, uh, you know, when I was at the U.S. Department of Transportation, I was also always asked how I would feel about an action that I took showing up on the front of the, the Washington Post. And so that's <laughs> another question I like to ask the engineers is, um, well, how do you think that question will sound when uh, you're asked about it in, by a newspaper reporter when someone dies there? <laughs> oh, <Love> yeah. <laughs> well, on that note. <laughs> well, Beth, thank you ever so much for a, a tremendous presentation. Well, thank yeah, you for really inviting me. And I really do look forward to working with you all more closely. I I think there's a lot I need to learn about uh, what we need to make sure we're putting in, in our technical assistance. And like I said, I want to do better at storytelling for all different people who are trying to move throughout our communities so that it becomes more obvious to those who are supposed to be serving us by designing and creating our roadway system. Well, we really look forward to growing this partnership with, with you and, and working with you and being part of a coalition with you. Um, and I really appreciate you taking the time and the energy, um, and we appreciate your passion and your commitment. It means a lot to us, and we would like to keep it going. So thank any, you so any, much. Any thank closing you. comments for anyone else? All right. Well, thanks um, to all of the ACB media people and the streamers and everybody involved with making this actually happen and uh we hope you have a great rest of your day all righty welcome all to our hill to breakout room c to our hill etiquette panel with me and claire and um special guests michael garrett and katie frederick hello guys hey Sonda. great so how it's going to work is we're going to give you like a rundown of what to do during a meeting and then we're going to have some role play and then we're going to take q and a and how to Q&A on, on the role play, and then we're going to have a member of the audience. If we, time, if we have time to do that, um, give us the Hill meeting. So let's go. Awesome. Um, so hey, everybody, this is Claire. Thanks for introducing me, Swatha. Um, I know a lot of you. It's exciting to be here and working with you guys. Um, Swatha and I are going to take some turns just going over some of the the do's and don'ts, the 101 of what to expect when you have um, a Hill meeting. Usually I would say when you're on the Hill, but we all know that this year it's virtual, but still just as important. Um, we're going to go through some just, you know, the 101 of Hill visits, um, and then we'll jump into some role playing like uh, Swatha said. But to kick us off, um, I am pulling my notes up in front of me. Um, what to expect when you're, again, on the Hill, but in this, this um, sense, what to expect when we're on a Zoom meeting with the Hill staffer. So the first thing I wanted to talk about is that it's a conversation. Uh, I know lots of you have participated in the leadership conference in the past. So for some of you, this is, you know, you're, you're very familiar. But for those of you who have never done it before, welcome. And know that it's just a fun conversation. Be comfortable. Don't feel like you have to have, you know, a 
a whole speech prepared, just, you know, be ready to have a back and forth conversation with the staff members. Um, sometimes you actually get to meet with the Congress member. Although I have to say that most of the time it won't be, but if you do get a, a meeting with him or her, that's really exciting and report it back. We want to know, um, but most of the time it's going to be a staffer, what we often refer to as staffers. Um, every once in a while, you'll get an intern instead, but you know what, whether you're talking to the Congress member themselves or a college intern, treat it the same that, you know, you're there to talk about these issues and it's really important and that we want to represent ACB. So no matter who you're talking to, you know, go in there with confidence and be excited about what you're doing. Um, I'm laughing at my notes because in my notes I had, sometimes you have to meet in the hallway and other times you're in the congressman's office. Mm -hmm. Again, that doesn't apply because we're virtual, but for future years, just know that you have to be flexible. Um, they might have you meet in all kinds of places here, there, and everywhere. And I think flexibility is one of the main things we want you guys to take away. Uh, be prepared. Know that the time frame can really um, vary from one office to the next. Sometimes they will get you in and out of there in 10 minutes because they're just super busy. Sometimes they are so excited to have us and you could be in there for an hour without even realizing it. Every office is different. Every person is different. So just again, be flexible with what's going on. Sometimes the staffer you get to talk to is um, assigned specifically to the topics at hand. So for instance, the staffers, they have portfolios. Some of them work on transportation issues. Some of them work on social security issues. So sometimes the staffer you're talking to will be very well versed in that topic area, and sometimes they're not. And that's okay. Either way, just be flexible and re be ready to explain it, but just know that you'll have different experiences. And then lastly, before I hand it over to Swatha, know that you're going to have really different experiences based on who you're talking to. All people are different, right? Some people are super chatty. They'll have a million questions. They're like me. They're extroverts. They want to talk. And then sometimes you're going to get a really quiet person who just, you know, is there to take notes. Um, they might not have a lot of questions, but that doesn't mean that you shouldn't be excited about being there. Maybe they're just a quiet person. So go ahead and just be bold and still tell them what we're doing. So know that you can have the chattiest person in the world, the quietest person in the world, but most of the time you're probably going to have someone in between. Um, Swatha, I'll pass it back to you. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, thanks, thanks Claire. Um, so things to keep in mind when um, on the on Zoom or um, meeting your member, um, as, far, as far as dress goes, you want to dress... Um, at least somewhat nice. So don't be in a stained t-shirt or in like a pajama or in pajamas. Like just like look kind of like you would if you're talking to someone you you want to impress. So dress to impress, not 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 sure the suit, but more like a shirt, a nice shirt or a nice pair of slacks and that. So um you also want to make sure that your background in Zoom is not like cluttered and just noisy. Like for me, like right now, I have a look right now. My background is a blank white canvas. So you might just want to just think like just think like not too busy, not not too like yeah. Just make it make make it make it look nice because these people give are giving 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 you time and their energy just to hear you speak about issues. So treat it treat it with some 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 level of respect. So yeah, um, Claire, back to you. Thanks, Swatha. Um, so the next thing I wanted to go over is a list of commonly asked questions. 
Um, Swatha and I put together a list of questions that do come up a lot on Hill visits, um, and we've saved that onto the website. So you guys can go onto the website under the leadership conference links and it will be there. Um, These are just commonly asked questions that I get as somebody who works on the Hill. So because you guys don't work on the Hill all the time, you might not get these questions. Um, So don't feel like you have to know every last answer. But because they're things I hear all the time, I thought I would just flag a few things. Um, One of the most obvious that you guys are all prepared for already, because I know you've been to the, um, the different webinars that have been going on. What's the issue that you want the Congress member to to address? You know, we want to have something kind of defined that we want to tell them about. So they'll say, hey, what's what's the issue? And that's where you'll talk about the imperatives. Um, They want to know if there's any specific piece of legislation, you know, in order to get something accomplished in Congress. They want a bill to be out there. So they're going to say, hey, is there a bill out there? Who's introduced it? What's the bill number? Those kinds of things. So again, you don't always have to know this. Again, it's not your job, but if you know those, that's really helpful. Um, who supported it? Who? What Congress member introduced it? Is it bipartisan? They love to hear that things are bipartisan because then whether you're coming from a Republican or Democratic state, they're more likely to, to promote it. So that's really helpful to know. One question you get a lot that I'm sure all of us will frown when we hear it, but it comes a lot, comes up a lot. How expensive is it? Um, that unfortunately comes up a lot because things cost money. So knowing that that might come up is good to know. Another question that is not related to the issue, but we get a lot. So I wanted to flag it. And I bet most of you who have been on the Hill have heard this before. Are you guys the same as that other blind organization? You guys know what I'm talking about. People often conflate or misunderstand what ACB versus NFB is. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. But just be aware that they might think, oh, there was another group that was just on the Hill last week or whatever it was. And just be able to say, hey, you know, we're actually a different membership organization. We have a lot of the same goals and ideas. But no, we are a different group because they do tend to mistake us all the time. So be aware. Mm -hmm. Um, And then lastly, one question you'll get, and I hope you get this, and this is a very great one to get, what are other issues? So of course, we want to talk about the imperatives, but you guys live there at the state level and you know what's going on right there in your own district. So when they say, hey, what are other issues that we should know about? Please feel free and be ready to say, hey, you know, in my area, schools are struggling or, you know, that's just something I'm making up. But you guys know your state way better than we do. They're going to ask what other issues are going on. So be ready to say, in my district, X, Y, or Z is going on. And Swatha, I'll pass it back to you. Yeah, that's a good segue. Um, like you mentioned, like, you, you know what's going on in the state. In my state, like, X, Y, and Z, X, y, is going on. X, y, and Z is going on in my state. So, um, yeah, definitely... Um, bring that up and, and prepare. Um, you should prepare like with um, kind of research. So kind of look up, look, look up, look up your congressman or senator and um, figure out like what committees are on, which you they care about um, because that will really influence how your meeting goes. If they care about transit and you, and you want and like bring up the data act, then they're, they're really going to like latch onto that. And you, and you know that they're, you know, you know, that you know that they're going to take it back to their boss. Um, you also want to like know as much as you can about a bill about the imperatives. So, like like Claire mentioned, like cost and all that. So you might want to like have an answer right away or have an answer to like like about like in like a like a pinch or something. Um, 
So, with how to prepare, um, you also, yeah, and um, what to bring. You want to write with, so either like a braille or, or a pencil paper, if you can, or um, just type something on a document when, like, during a meeting. Um, take notes on how they respond to it or how they um, engage, engage with you. So, like in our in our pill, pill visit feedback forms, we ask we ask you like um, on a scale on a scale one to five, how engaged was was your congressman? Because that helps help that helps us a lot to know um, help helps helps us at ACB you know who to follow follow up with follow up with, follow up with afterward or who to um, reach out to say like hey do you want to sponsor sponsor our bill or do you want to like hear, hear more hear more hear more about it so. Just taking notes of how, how it's going and taking notes of what they asked you. And if you can't answer it away, follow up, follow up, follow up, follow up with an email and say, like, okay, I will um, ask my president or my um, staff member um, or my like, ACB staff member um, the uh, get your answer. So make sure that they take notes and just take notes and prepare ahead of time. Which, yeah, that too, Claire. Great. Thanks, Latha. Um, and just to, to echo that, I think that's a great piece of advice. If you don't know the answer, that's okay. Take note of it and tell them you'll get back to them. That's a, a great piece of advice. Um, so the last part I'm going to talk about is how to go above and beyond. And this is just a few things that I've personally seen working on the Hill. You guys do not need to know all of this. You guys are members of ACB. You're volunteering your time. So don't feel like you need to know every last answer, but a few things that can be helpful. So if you want to go above and do some research, a few things you can know. Have statistics that are helpful on the issues we're talking about. And I know a lot of the imperative fact sheets already have statistics, so you're already equipped with some of that knowledge. But if you want to do a little extra research, like Slothla said, um, how does the issue present within your own district? So I, get, I think all of us can talk about how these impact us personally, but also they want to know what's going on in their own backyard. So if you can say, let's say hypothetically you live in Detroit, Michigan, if you can say in our own backyard, X, Y, and Z is going on, that can really be powerful because they want to know what's going on in their district because that's who they were voted into to represent. Um, another thing, again, you do not need to know this, but if you want to go above and beyond, know what either um, committees or caucuses your representatives are part of, because depending on what committees and caucuses they're part of, they work in certain areas. So say if they're part of the transportation caucus and you want to talk to them about transportation, that might make their ears perk up. So again, you don't have to know this, but if you want to do extra research. Um, another thing you can look up, what they've um, sponsored previously or supported previously, you can say, hey, two years ago, you supported um, the Medicare Act for low vision devices. You're going to do it again this year. So knowing what they've done before helps. Um, and then lastly, if you can talk about your own experiences within their specific jurisdiction. So I know you guys are all talking about um, talking with st uh, state members, but for instance, I'm from California originally. There's a lot of districts in California, but if you happen to be in your very specific own district and you can say, hey, I live in X city, that can also be really powerful and persuasive because they go, oh, you know, you're literally one of us. <laughs> um, so feel free to look up your own specific um, representative um, if you're visiting representatives in your state and can speak to the fact that you're not just from their state, but you're also from their district. Yeah. Aswatha? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so like Claire mentioned, just do research and just make sure that you can speak to the issues as well as you can. Um, so to follow up after the meeting, you have you had the you had the meeting, you went well, it went it went well, you feel like you really connected with staff or what do you do next? 
So make sure at the end of the meeting that you exchange emails or exchange business cards, um, virtual cards, um, and send them some. They think you think you know. Send them like send them. You know they they give they give their time for you, for you. Um, that you should thank them for that. Um, so. And say like you know it was great to talk to you today. Um, here is some more background on the on the imperatives, or here's the answer 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 to question answer to questions answer to your question answer to your question. I didn't I didn't have any questions before. Um, so yeah, and there's also a hill visit feedback form which will go out um, later today. That we want the we ACB want to want to fill out and send send to us so we can um, take action on the staffers' um, interest level or on the um, or follow up with the office. So let's say um, that the staffer was really engaged with with the web with the web with the web with the web, web access um, imperative and they really wanted to learn more about it. Let us know that. Let us know that they want to know more. Maybe interested, interested in bringing bringing back to the boss, and so we can follow up. So yeah, just make sure that you follow with them. Follow up too. So it's twofold. Us and them. I do, Claire. Awesome. Um, so that takes us to the end of kind of the one hundred and one and what you guys should expect and what you guys should think about. Um, so the next section, like Swatha had said at the top of the session, is we wanted to do some role playing because I think a lot of us know the best way to learn is to do. Um, so we've had two ACB members who we are so excited to have here to be interviewed by myself and by Swatha to kind of get a taste of what it's like. Um, so first, I'm going to interview, I shouldn't say interview, I'm going to meet with because it's a meeting, it's a hell meeting. I'm going to meet with Katie. And then Swatha is going to meet with Michael. And we're just going to kind of spend a few minutes. It's not going to be nearly as long as a real one would be because we only have an hour total. But we're going to do a quick little meeting and then we'll save a little bit of time. And then we'll ask you guys, how would you have handled it? You know, um, did, you know, would you answer a question differently? Would you respond differently? Or did they do it, you know, exactly how you would do it? So yeah, we're going to jump into two role-playing um, situations. And then by the way, like Swatha said, if we have time at the end, we also would love to take a volunteer from the audience to do the same thing. So be thinking about that if we have time, if you would like to do that yourself. Um, so without further ado, um, Katie, welcome into my office. I would love to talk to you. I am a Hill staffer and would love to hear what's going on. Sure. Well, thank you, Claire, and happy to be with you on this sunny Monday afternoon here. Um, but really want to speak with you this afternoon about, about four issues that really impact people with disabilities and in particular people like me who are blind or have low vision. So the first of these is the um, Exercise and Fitness for All Act. And this is uh, bipartisan legislation that has a Senate and a House oh, bill. Yeah. You said it's bipartisan. Does that mean, um, has it been, can you, or excuse me, can you tell me who's introduced it, which senators and, and reps? Yes, absolutely. So Senator Duckworth um, has introduced it in the Senate as S2504. And in the House, the bipartisan um, introduction has been made by Representative DeSalier and Representative Young as well. So we are privileged to have all of these sponsors um, for this legislation because it's, it's, you know, we have about 25% of people in our country have disabilities, and we all know that exercising 
and is good for all of us, right, whether we have a disability or not. And so what this bill, this bipartisan bill, seeks to do is ensure that public places have accessible exercise equipment and provide accessible instruction um, for... I don't, I don't think I understand that. You know, I'm, I'm not a person with a disability. How is it possible that somebody who's blind could use some, you know, modern day exercise equipment? Sure. So that's a great question. So um, people who are blind or have low vision, um, there are um, devices that allow... Um, so, so many devices do have, have touch screens, but there is technology out there that speaks and reads the contents of the screen aloud to enable us to use devices like our iPhones or iPads. So um, these Wait, kind so of main... people can use touch screens, so it's possible? Absolutely, yes, if they're designed right and have that um, assistive technology. So um, it's it's really, you know, mainstream technology has come so far, and um, we really just want to get access to our exercise equipment so that we can um, live healthy lifestyles and, and get up and get moving and keep active in our communities. Great. Um, yeah, so we, we really would love it if your office would would sign on to this um, bipartisan legislation and um, join us in sponsoring this this bill. Do you know if it's going to be expensive? I mean, it seems like trying to set up new regulations or things like that. I don't know. I'm always skeptical. Is that going to be a lot of money? It is not because the good thing about this is, again, as I said, the technology already exists to make this equipment accessible. And so, um, you know, there won't be cost. So I know that um, that will make your congressperson very happy. Um, no, but there, um, there, there is no cost um, associated with this. So um, that, uh, yes, no cost. Okay, um, great. Okay, well, tell me about one of the other imperatives. Sure. So kind of along those lines of, you know, again, accessibility and equipment. Um, the next item that we have is the Medical Non-Visual Accessibility Act. And this is um, a House bill, House Bill 4853. And this one is really important because, you know, oftentimes um, people who have, who are blind or have low vision may need to access things like insulin pumps or heart monitors or things that need to be in the body for up to a month or so. And, you know, these are critical to people's health. And so, again, um, these devices, um, we need them to be accessible as well. Don't people um, who are blind just have people that live with them who can help them use those kinds of things? You know, they really don't. Um, I, you know, for me personally, um, I live by myself and um, I do have a, a guide dog with me here, but he's great, but he cannot um, help with daily living tasks. So um, it is, it is really important to, to make sure that um, these essential medical devices that help people maintain their good health are fully accessible to use. And um, again, this is, um, you know, we're asking the FDA to um, make sure that um, these class two and class three devices, so these, um, again, like the heart monitors and the insulin pumps and the, um, that these devices are accessible um, for everyone. And this is also 
Um, this has been introduced in the House as um, Bill HR 4853, and it does have um, sponsorship as well. Okay, cool. Um, you said you have four, what's the third one? Yeah, so the next one, um, we don't yet have a, a bill for this, but um, we would love to have um, the Websites and Applications Accessibility Act um, introduced. And, you know, this one is, is again, really important, especially during the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, you know, all of us, I think, um, were, you know, if we were working in an office um, one week, the next week we were told to go home and stay in place, right? And so many of us, um, our workplaces and our schools had to adapt to doing everything online. Um, but again, for people who are blind or have low vision, um, while there is you know, technology that enables us to use computers and smartphones, um, the way that websites and applications are designed um, can lead to barriers. And so there are times when accessing things like um, you know, the telehealth services for a doctor, for example, are um, have been a barrier to some people, and so they've not been able to get the healthcare they need during COVID. Um, and so, well, oh, I feel like I've heard people complain about this for like small businesses that don't have a lot of money to set up their websites. Will it impact the small businesses? Um, no, um, because you know, really, we're looking at the companies that. Um, design and develop websites for for small businesses. So um, this would impact um, more of those entities um, because we're wanting the Department of Justice to, um, you know, set forth uh, clear guidelines to denote what you know uh, standards for making websites and applications accessible for people. So um, right now, there um, currently is not. Um, those guidelines currently did not exist. And so for, you know, for me, for example, if I encounter um, a website that's not working or something, I have to contact the, the developer or customer service and say, oh, I'm having trouble with your website. And, you know, they may not know how to fix it or what that even means. So um, with the DOJ um, guidelines, it would be, you know, clear and, um, you know, enforceable to, to make those websites accessible. <clears throat> That's great. And I'm going to stop you there, Katie. You were awesome. Um, we are at time. And thank you for putting up with my annoying, pushy questions. Um, you guys will not always get that, but I thought I would just be that that person for Katie. So thank you. Um, before we move on to our next mock um, meeting, I thought it might be fun. Um, Sheila, if you can explain how people can raise your hand. Maybe we can take one or two comments on you know, maybe how you would have dealt with the situation, what you would have said, what Katie did awesome, and that, you know, you totally think was a great idea. we just love to have some um, interaction from the listeners. Okay. If anybody would like to make a comment or ask a question, if you're on a PC, to raise your hand is Alt-Y. On a Mac, Option-Y. On a smart device, it's on your screen to raise your hand. And on a standard keypad, it is star 9. And when I give you permission to talk, then you will be able to unmute and I will assist you when it comes to that. So Joseph, you may go ahead. Alt-A, I believe, there you go. Yeah, it takes a while to find this space to unmute because all day doesn't work. You got it, you're good. Doesn't, okay, I'm, I'm first time I wanna volunteer to be the guinea pig. Uh, but I wanted to ask you, 
Uh, but when do you find the appropriate time to mention the bill numbers? At, at the beginning of the conversation, I like the way it was done here. And the other thing is, if I supply them with with the documents that I already have that you've presented, when I say, well, you've got, if you have the same documents that I do, uh, then we can, you know, you can tell me this specific uh, passages that confuse you a little bit, and I'll try to clarify that for you. You know what, Joe, those are some great questions, but let's, we're going to have a 10 minute Q&A session in about 15 minutes. So right now I'd love if we have, you know, a minute or so just to talk about some ways that we might deal with some of the questions that Katie dealt with. So do you mind if you save those questions till the Q&A section in about 15 no, minutes? No, 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 not at all. I'm sorry. I thought. No, no problem. I should have been clear. Thank you. Okay. That was the only hand you had, Claire. Okay. Uh, Katie, do you have any thoughts? That's put you on the spot. No, so I do appreciate, um, I think one of Joe's questions was around, you know, when do you mention the bill numbers and how does that work? And I think, again, as, as Claire and Swatha mentioned in the beginning, this is a, um, a conversation. So, you know, sometimes um, it happens that, um, you know, I've, I've gone in and, you know, handed over the, you know, usually after the introductions, I will hand over my, my sheet of, of the imperatives and say, oh, it's, you know, great to be here today. We have a few issues we'd like to discuss with you and, and here's some, some, some material for you. And so, um, you know, we will, it just, um, I don't know that there's a right or wrong time per se to discuss the bills. Um, it, it does just kind of happen in, in the conversation. And, and again, as, as Claire in, interjected when I mentioned bipartisan, her ears, you know, perked up and she spoke up right away about, oh, wow, this is bipartisan. And I've, I've seen that. I, that's happened to me, right, where we're going in and, and um, the staffers really do love to hear that, um, that that legislation is bipartisan. Um, I think, you know, for me, um, I think even though this was a role play, that 10 minutes or whatever went really fast. <laughs> so um, I know we didn't even get through all the imperatives. So I, I think, again, just... Um, you know, trying to be mindful of the, of the time that you may have. Um, sometimes we have 15 minutes. Sometimes um, on Zoom, we've had a bit more time. So, um, you know, really being mindful. And also, um, as I tried to do, I probably could have done a little bit better job, but really trying to make that personal connection. So, you know, I'm saying, okay, I'm a person who's blind and I have trouble accessing, you know, telehealth or I um, would love to exercise in my apartment complex, but the equipment, I can't use it. So again, making it as, as personal as you can, but also getting across um, the few points that you can. Perfect. Thank you so much, Katie. You were phenomenal. I appreciate you uh, being one of our uh, participants. Absolutely. The floor is yours. Yeah, okay. Um, so is this for another role play or is this for another question or comment? I, uh, uh, well, I think we're moving into okay. to Michael's that, turn. Yeah, that works. Or yeah, Michael. Um, so Michael <laughs> and I are going to play, um, we're going to do the um, visit. So um, Michael, welcome. Thank you. Yeah, so I hear you have some imperatives for me or some issues you want to talk about? Yes. Yes, I'm here and I have a document for you. We've shared that with you and that lists the imperatives, but I want to just sort of add a little bit to them. And uh, we have four imperatives this year I'm rep representing the American Council of the Blind. And uh, the first the first one is uh, the exercise uh, and fitness for all 
Now, what is ACB? Hold on. I, we, we the ACB is the American Council of the Blind. And, and so these are our imperatives for this year that, that, that we'd like Congress to act, act on. And this first bill, as I mentioned, is the Exercise and Fitness for All uh, uh, Act. And it, um, it has to do with exercise equipment and devices. And whether you, whether you know it or not, there are about 25% of our country uh, consists of people with disabilities. And those of us who are blind or visually impaired or have other disabilities are vulnerable to chronic uh, disease and health, health conditions if we lack the opportunity to, to, to get some exercise. Uh, and I'm I'm one of those who who loves who loves exercise, and so so uh, it would be a, a a great opportunity to to have a, a equipment that is accessible. And I'll tell you a personal story. About ten years ago, I could barely stand up because my knees were in such bad shape. So I went to my local uh, fitness gym and fortunately there was someone there who could instruct me about using the machines. And, and so I really turned my health around, but later on they bought brand new equipment and all of the equipment had digital displays and I was unable to access that equipment. It was not accessible to me as a person who's blind and low vision. And so I had to manufacture other means to get exercise. And so what we're asking is that uh, Congress would uh, um, uh, that that Congress would would urge fitness facilities to make this equipment, or at least provide the basic uh, uh, accessibility for all of these uh, different machines, such so that people who are blind or vision impaired or with other disabilities can can use them. This is a bipartisan bill. Uh, and 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 it's with uh, Senator Duckworth uh, and Representative uh, Desaulnier and Representative Young. So uh, hopefully we can count on you you to support us. Okay, uh, I will take it back to my, to my boss. Um, anything else? Sure. And the, the second the second. Uh, piece of legislation we're, we're asking support on is the Medical Device and Non-Visual Accessibility Act. And here, along the same lines of accessibility, uh, again, this, is, this bill also has, has a sponsor. Uh, it's HR 4853, but major um, the major uh, 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 
monitoring systems, uh, uh, home care, home home health care systems, are, are primarily have digital displays, and this makes it very difficult for people who are blind, low vision, or even the deaf blind to access these these uh, devices such as glucose monitors, blood pressure uh, readers, and even chemotherapy treatments. So what we're Wait, help you out, a friend help you out? Can you a friend, a friend help you out with that? No, why do you, why you need to access it by yourself? Well, I'll give you an example. I'll give you an example. I have a friend who had a heart transplant and there was no machinery or no uh, accessible heart monitor that he could use in his recovery. And one had to be uh, created with Braille to help him uh, monitor his condition during his recovery. And so, but if these types of machines or devices were were made accessible during the manufacturing process, it would help tremendously for those of us who are blind and visually impaired. And, and as I said, even those who are deaf blind. So okay. hopefully you will be able to to take back to your to the Congress member and ask for for support. Okay, uh, what's next? And then we're, we're looking for support from the uh, the uh, website and applications accessibility act. Now this one also is near and dear to my heart because I have, like most blind and vision impaired people, have a difficult time accessing all of the information that is on that is online i mean think about it if you were blind or visually impaired all of the shopping uh sales uh entertainment uh workplace portals all of the thing or uh, transportation services all of those things that that are necessary for daily living are being shifted to websites and online access. So we would we we are urging Congress to give uh, explicit uh, guidelines and guidance so that website inf information, website services and applications and online services must be made accessible to those of us who are blind and vision impaired. Perfect. And I'm going to jump in and stop you there. Um, thank you so much, Michael. Thanks, Michael. Yeah, you were great. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Are there any comments from either Michael or the participants who would like to say how they might handle one of the situations, the questions? As you guys can tell, Swatha was far less talkative, which I promise a lot of you will get. <laughs> so you have to yeah. be ready for either extreme. So I feel like we have any commenters. Well, use I'll, I'll say in I'll say in criticism of myself, I, I don't I don't I don't sound rehearsed, and and 
But that's one of the things that I always try to do before I get to sessions is my 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 slogan is is prepare uh, uh, and, and rehearse, you know, prepare, practice and present. And and so usually I have have these things boiled down to about two minutes per uh, per imperative to make the the salient points and then ask for support of the Congress member. But I, I promise you by by this week, this week, I'll be more uh, refined. <laughs> yeah, no problem. You're, you're great. You're doing well. I can tell everybody one thing I really liked about Michael's presentation was his personal stories that he tied in, you know, it makes it real. It makes it, you know, the experience that those of us who are blind or visually impaired can really say, Hey, this is a real issue that we care about and impacts our lives. Okay. You have a couple hands, Deb, you may go ahead. A or oh. Yeah, command shift A. No, she she's unmuted. Yeah. Okay. Go ahead. All right, we'll go to the next one. But she is unmuted. So. I think I can have it now. Oh, there you I are. Can. Yes, there you are. <laughs> yeah, sorry, my my headset apparently isn't connected to Zoom. So on the website accessibility act, I would like to add this piece. Um, and I love Michael's stories. So my story would be is that I've been using computers and websites for many, many years as a blind person very successfully. And over the years, they have become less accessible. Mm. And it doesn't mm -hmm. cost any more money to use an accessible um, software. It's just that people like to choose to use pictures and not label them. So mm -hmm. we really need the Congress's help to make those website developers follow the rules. The rules are already there. It's just that nobody's making them follow them because computers are completely accessible as long as they label the pictures and don't use what they call flash. Um, anyway, that's just my point. I always like to try it into work um, also and say that, you know, it's it getting in the way of me being able to do my work. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, never mentioned that. Yeah, those are great. Yep. Okay, Vicki, you may go ahead. Can you hear me? Yes, barely. Yeah. You're very faint. Oh, okay. Sorry. There you go. That. Much better. Okay. Um, one of I loved Michael's stories as well. Uh, however, um, when he said that he represented the American Council of the Blind, and they asked uh, the Swafa asked, um, who are you with? He might have put in a couple of sentences about what ACB is. Well, yeah, I was trying to get into that, but yeah. Thousands of, uh, thousands of uh, uh, members in a, a national um, organization, you know, that sort of thing. I think that's a great suggestion. You guys could even read um, the, the little mission statement line off of the website. Feel free to... Mm -hmm memorize that it's not very long yeah yeah or claire mentioned being like they can they, they, they tend to con conflate nfb and acb so see so have like a little picture and why they're different so yeah okay don you may go ahead yes um 
one suggestion that I might have that I would have is to to get the uh, congressperson to participate is an example that you can give them right in the room um, and it about cost and that ask them if they've got an iPhone and tell them if they do within five seconds you can make it accessible to them make it accessible to you by asking them turn voiceover on mm-hmm. that Apple has incorporated accessibility into their DNA and that uh, that's what we're asking for these developers to do is incorporate accessibility into the DNA so that it's readily available for anyone who wants to use it, whether they're sighted or not sighted. Mm-hmm. And then uh, by uh, if and I know that uh, Androids also have that accessibility. So if we know how to do mm-hmm. that, ask them to just pull their phone out and say, OK, tell it to turn voiceover on. You've now made it an accessible uh, machine. And we're asking for that same sort of things in the um, uh, physical training, in the equipment, um, on the computers, and that so that it's it's readily available to be activated when needed. That's great. I think I've actually um, remember someone saying they've done that in the past on Hill Visit. So I love that. Um, we're, we'll open the floor now to just feel free to keep bringing up these comments, but let's also open the floor to just any questions you might have about Hill Visits. Okay, Lynn, you may unmute. Yeah, hi, uh, this is Lynn Corral. I have done many Hill Visits in Alaska and I'm, I'm, I have three districts that I'm working with here in Washington. And one of the things um, I really want to reiterate is um, <clears throat> in my doctorate, they, they have a, they have, we have a template and I said, couldn't use it. So I wrote to Disability Services um, at Walton University and they said, you know what, don't worry about it. When the time comes, we'll make sure, you know, I have a I'm taking a class on the literature review, and <clears throat> and I told them I couldn't do it. So disability services said, "Well, why can't you just do it at the end, and we'll help you?" You know, mm-hmm. I mean that was really helpful. But a lot of times, a lot of these websites are not accessible, even though they're supposed to be, and it's really, really, really frustrating. And I want—I'm probably going to talk about the website. Um, applicability and accessibility act because it's so near and dear to my heart i used to teach brown technology and assistive technology to people who are going blind so i really have a passion for the, for this kind of legislation but plus all the other ones and, and, and the um, cvaaa too so you know all these things are so important and you ju- just have to tell your own story and i love the idea about you know i have an iphone too and i've had one since 2012 and I agree. Just turn voiceover on. See how it works. <laughs> we did that with the video description stuff, too, with Senator Stevens when he was alive. And I can tell you, it really makes a difference when they see how these things work and how they could use. Um, and also also about electronic health records. I could hardly ever get these things to work. So I agree. And, <clears throat> and I'm looking forward to doing this. I did it last year, too. And uh, we met with legislators in Alaska, too. So, you know, I, I know I had to do this. And I love I love talking to legislators and not just the legislators, but legislative staffers also need to be educated too, and they're very helpful to work with. Thank you very much. Yeah, Jamaica. Yes, um, my question is about the um, Hill Hill visit forms. Can we yeah. can we um, have 
um, everybody, everybody <sighs> fill one out together, or do we have to do it uh, by ourselves this year? So you do one per one per visit. So no matter how many people are in the are in the room, just one form per for each, for each visit. So okay, thank you. you. That's all I needed to know. Thanks. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, you don't have any others right now. This is Katie. If I could just jump in um, quickly, I think you know one thing that Zoom doing these meetings over Zoom allows is is the ability to demo you know some of the technology and things that we use. So I really like that that aspect aspect um, because again, it helps helps them get a better understanding of you know we can say accessible or we can say um, you know makes it easier to use or something like that. But what you know if we can show what that really means or how that impacts us, I think that's all the more. Um, important and, and in some cases, um, you know, could be done with Zoom. Yeah. If we don't have any hands raised, um, we can do uh, another volunteer. I know we already, Joe said he wanted to volunteer, unless there are others, you guys can raise your hands. We can see who raises their hand first. Um, but we do have some time if we'd like to do a, a volunteer from the audience. Uh, meeting and I can grill you with some questions. No, I'll be very kind. I promise. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You've got a victim. Lynn, you may unmute. All right, Claire, you want to go? Yeah. Lynn, are you there? Hi. Yes. Um, okay. <clears throat> I, I actually helped uh, Washington Council find a couple of years ago with that too. And one of the things that you have to say is, um, not to uh, give them any you know, personal information, get to right to the point, say what you have to say. Um, you know, usually we would hand them something if it was in person, you know, some, but it has to be very brief, like half a page, one page, just to give them a sense of what you're working with and tell them what you want them to do and ask them if the legislator would support it if you're talking to a legislative aide or a legislative assistant. So you have to really know what, you have to really know the bill numbers, who's sponsoring it. Like for the um, um, <clears throat> for some of these ones, they don't have a Senate companion bill yet. So you know, it would really be nice to say, well, gee, do you know a senator who would support this bill? Or you know, we don't care if it's a Democrat or Republican. This is not a Democratic or Republican bill. We just want people to support this mm -hmm. bill or that that sort of thing. But I think you have to get get straight to the point, and uh, that's that's my. Um, basically but my advice because a lot of times people just talk too much and you want to be able to listen to what they have to say or any questions that they have to ask if they have any questions exactly does, does that make sense were you, were you were you volunteering to be um doing a mock meeting lynn or we did you just want to add that comment no um uh, we did a, a mock no uh, we i was volunteering with the washington council of the blind and we did mock interviewing and one one you know and we, we we did a, a mock um stuff too you know we, we were we kind of had you know and then one one of the, one was like um you know one was and they were being interrupted all the time so that's another thing you don't want to be interrupted if you're at, at home so you want to make sure that nobody bothers you during the calls that you're um, making so that's another thing you should be very well aware of yeah yeah um lynn just clarify do you want to <coughs> for you want to monitor for now or do you want to just like that was your comment and do you want to volunteer to do a meeting now yeah sure Okay. All right, Chris, go ahead. Claire, take it away. Well, hi, Lynn. Nice to meet you. Um, what would you like to share with the Congress member today? I would like to share uh, a 
the website applicability and accessibility act because so many websites are not accessible for instance um, um electronic health records um, are very very difficult to navigate and if um and if they're not then you really can't schedule appointments you can't do these things and i'm also in a doctoral program and some of the templates that they use are not really accessible either and so then I have to go you mind to. If you, can you explain a little bit more? I thought I thought people who are blind use certain uh, assistive technology or software. Doesn't that read the stuff to you? What do you mean it's not accessible? Uh, not always, um, because sometimes even JAWS, which I use, which is Job Access with Speech, basically does not do everything that it could do. And so when they have templates uh, for my doctorate, and I spent like four hours on this the other day. Then I got really kind of annoyed, and so I talked to the professor. I said, "Look, I can't, I can't do this. This is impossible. It's taking me too long." So, if you could explain, if if you could uh, understand that, even though there is accessible technology, even the accessible technology is not perfect. So, um, I really appreciate your question because the more questions you ask, the more you will understand how this relates to us. So, what exactly will the bill do? The bill will um, ask the Department of Justice to uh, create standards that will um, create standards for accessibility of websites, um, whether it's electronic health records or you can see, you know, what 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 happened at your last appointment um, with the doctor, and also it will make education more accessible for people who are blind as well. In terms of templates and other um, and other meaningful uh, things that we have to do for for education, college, doctorate, masters, or whatever, or even school children, which we didn't have when I was a child. So you know, these are things that we really needed to understand that standards have to be developed. Does that make sense? That does make sense. Yeah. Uh, what other issues did you guys want to tell us about today? Well. Um, <clears throat> There is the um, an update to the um, CVAA, which is the um, oh my goodness, what does it stand for? The um, Communication Video Accessibility Amendments Act. And even though there isn't somebody who's sponsoring this this bill yet, this is something that instead of having just the five biggest markets. It will go to the 210 markets. And also, now that we have Fire TVs and other um, and, and other uh, audible, uh, audible uh, issues, uh, issues too, that all the, that all the um, issues um, will be addressed, that all the markets will be addressed, that everybody should have accessibility, including the Fire TV. Or, if it goes to more markets, is that going to cost more money? Well, um, the, the the bill hasn't been written yet, but these are things that American Council of the Blind, uh, our national advocacy organization, really wants to see all markets be covered in terms of accessibility, uh, in terms of um, even though we have the audio description on the Fire TV and some of these things, these things are voluntary. We need these things to be written into law to make sure that not just the five biggest markets, but the all the markets and all the streaming services are covered and will be accessible 
uh, to blind people. Does that make sense? Oh, so that would include like all the new streaming services like absolutely. and Hulu. Okay. Absolutely. Absolutely. And some of them have done pretty well. Netflix is doing a pretty good job, but not totally. But voluntary. We need standards that need to be developed for this too. So these are the two two that, uh, that I'm most passionate about, these two things. Does that make now, sense? Do you have any other questions, ma'am? Now, this might be a dumb question, but blind people like to watch television. That's an important thing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, we're, we're like everybody else. We're like everybody in the public. We like to watch TV and some shows are, um, are described, what, what they say is audio described. Um, and so then you can know what the action is, including uh, some movies are also audio described. And that tells you what the visual elements are on the screen, whatever people are wearing. Um, or what what their facial uh, facial expressions are, or their gestures. So these are things that blind people have have did not have many many years ago, you know. And now they have to. Now the theaters have to do it. They're not just just because they want to. They have to. So these are the sorts of things that I've been waiting for, you know, since I was a little girl. And now I can go to movies, and somebody doesn't have to be bothered by somebody explaining what's going on, which can be very annoying to sighted people. <laughs> and now I can actually listen to the headset myself. Does that make sense to you? That does make sense. Now, I this is all really new to me. I think I'd like to read about it. Do you have any literature that I can take to read about oh, this stuff? Yes. Um, there are summaries of the uh, imperatives, and I can certainly e- email that to you especially to thank you for your time and asking such great questions. We really, really appreciate anybody who meets with us at the American Council of the Blind. Do you have any other questions? And yes, I'll definitely be sending those imperatives to you. Awesome. Thank you so much, Lynn. It's been great meeting with you today. Thank you for meeting with me. I appreciate it. Of course. Great. So what are what are people's thoughts about that? I, again, love that Lynn brought in her own personal lived experience. I think that makes all the difference. Um, I loved how personable she was, very friendly. What do other people think? Any other questions or comments? You don't have any hands yet. Okay. Michael, any thoughts, Michael, or Key? My thoughts would be, again, just... Um, you know, it's it's good to to be prepared and to have, you know, questions, um, answers to questions thought of, but also, um, again, just this is a conversation. These are, you know, people who genuinely um, may not understand, or this might be their first time meeting a person who's blind or low vision, or what has also happened to me is we go into a meeting and they say, oh, yeah, well, my, you know, my, my grandmother's blind or my neighbor or something like that. And so then you can have you know, you might go off into a different direction. So um, I think just, you know, don't be, you know, don't be afraid or nervous if you mess up or, you know, something like that. Um, It's, you know, explain the issues, um, answer the questions. And if you don't know, you know, say you don't know and you'll get back to them and just um, really take the time, you know, the chance to um, express, you know, what these issues, again, mean to you and mean to your ability to um, access information as well. I really also like that Lynn said that she would email the fact sheet in because that's a great way to connect with them. Now you've mm-hmm. got their email address, you can send a thank you follow up, that kind of yes. thing. 
one thing that's really nice when we're in person is you can often collect their business card, but obviously we can't do that because it's virtual. So instead you can say, Hey, you know, I can't collect your business card. So what's your email address? You know, I'll send you that sheet. So that's a great way to build that connection and be able to follow up. Yeah. I was just going to reemphasize too, that, that conversation aspect, you know, we, we had, uh, we had one guy who was, uh, a staffer for uh, a con- Congress member from Texas, but he lived in Florida and he, but we found out that he was visually impaired himself. He was mm-hmm. a very high partial. So over the years, we, we always looked forward to meeting with him and sharing stories. And, and he was, turns out he was very familiar with Texas, with, with his Congress members uh, district. So, so, so we developed that relationship and we ultimately got support from the Congress member because we would always take our issues and eat. we sort of look forward to, to visiting with visiting with each other and having that conversation. So that, mm-hmm. that, that really works. Martha, you have about three minutes. Any final okay. questions or comments? Yeah, we do one more, I think, right? Yeah. Yeah. Anything, Sheila? Any hands? Or no hands. Nope. Right. I think we can wrap up, right, Claire? Yep. Um, right. Great. Well, well, thank you, everybody. Um, if you have any follow-up questions, feel free to reach out. <laughs> I'm going to volunteer Swatha because I am not a staff member <laughs> at ACB, but feel free to reach out to Swatha and she can, you know, relay any questions and um, we, we'd love to assist in any way. So. Absolutely. At advocacy, advocacy at ACB.org. So. Then I'm in. (laughs) All right. Thanks, guys. Have a great day. Have great health visits, everybody.